A good Wednesday morning to you and welcome to Real Talk. Ryan Jesperson here with you. Samuel Brooks, Sarah Hoyles in the house. That is Ayla Brooke and the Soundmen from their album Desolation Sounds. If you happen to live in the same part of the world that we live in, I want to let you know, and, and for the Taste of Edmonton Festival, this mentions for free, my friends, because we so appreciate Ayla Brooke and the Soundmen and the, the donation of their music as the soundtrack of this show uh, that we want to let you know that next Tuesday evening, Ayla Brooke and the Soundmen will be playing live at the Taste of Edmonton Festival, and I will see you there. This show is presented each and every morning by the team at Bitcoin Well. If you have questions about crypto and you want to talk to real-life humans who have insight on it, then Bitcoin Well is a great place to go. It's where I get my questions answered. And if you have questions about Bitcoin that you'd like answered today, it's a great time to tweet them at us. Use the hashtag RealTalkRJ, the founding CEO of Bitcoin Well. Adam O'Brien is going to be joining us in about a, an hour and a half from now, alongside the founding CEO of Kubi Energy, Jake Kubiski. We're going to be talking about the, the environmental impact of crypto and sustainability initiatives and new technology and a whole bunch of other wonderful, cool, interesting stuff. I'll probably have to ask him about Jeff Bezos and his big rocket, too. I, I, I don't know. The big phallic rocket. Jeff Bezos' rocket. Oh, jeez. I have to, right? Don't I have to ask them about that? I mean, it's not like I they guess. have anything to do with it. But when you take a look at here, hang on. Let me get through this. Let's do the opener. Okay. And then we can poke fun at the richest man in the world. This is Real Talk. Real Talk starts right now. Here's Ryan Jesperson. Coming up in, I promise, like 30 seconds. Well, I can't say I promise 30 seconds and then start talking about the big, enormous penis that Jeff Bezos rode into space yesterday. But Becky Best, Burt Whistle, in just a second from CPAWS, uh, Canadian Parks and Wilderness Society, on privatizing forest management. We're going to talk about curbing extremism today. We're going to talk about vaccine passports. An expert in health and science policy, uh, lawyer Ubaka Ogbogu, thinks that they're a terrible idea. We'll ask the good doctor why. And then, as mentioned, we'll talk tech and sustainability and crypto uh, coming up. Plus, other news of the day. Sarah Hoyle's the editorial producer of this show, the minute you had to know it was going to come up at some point, the minute that I mentioned Jeff Bezos rocket, you just rolled your eyes. People could hear, oh, geez, she says. <laughs> what is it about the story in particular that prompted the, oh, geez? Uh, I think I think to top it all off, like with a cherry on top, was his quote yesterday. What did he say? Where he was wearing his big old cowboy hat. And he's like, this is thanks to all of the Amazon workers yeah. and all of the Amazon uh, <laughs> people, like people that buy from Amazon. I was like, you realize you're just admitting that you basically are ripping everybody off. Yeah, but you don't become the richest man in the world. Whatever he's worth. He's worth like he's worth something astronomical. $175 billion or something like that. You can't even wrap your mind around it. I'm still such a pleb. That when my friends and I, when we talk about wealth like that and trying to wrap your minds around it, I can't think of it in terms of actual, like, I don't know if Conor McGregor was serious yesterday, the, the UFC fighter who experienced that gruesome injury on his recent fight, but on his Instagram yesterday, he posted a photo and said, my Lamborghini yacht is ready. And I don't know <laughs> if it's real or not. I don't know if it's fake. I'm not sure. You got to be careful about fake things on the Internet. Everybody thinks that the French President Macron has a, a, a tweet out right now or made a comment about... You know, he, he he's not sacrificing his adolescent daughters to the anti-vaxxers anymore. And, and, and now it's their turn to stay home. And and it turns out that the, the 
quote is false. No it's way. not real. Yeah, I just went on and quietly deleted a couple of my comments on the quote. <laughs> I was just, no one will notice that. Zoinks. <laughs> delete, delete, delete. So you got you never know what's true on the internet, but uh, I, I did think uh, you wonder how many Amazon employees maybe stepped into these kind of, you know, the private rooms that they have so so that so they don't have total meltdowns and breakdowns at work, and I'm not mocking that type of thing. It's a real story. It's Remember, true. A- Amazon's really proud. They say this is how much we care about our employees. We're giving them little timeout spaces so if they need to basically collapse, that they can do so. Like it's not a good thing, but at the same time, you don't become worth 150 billion dollars, Sam, unless you step on a few people on the way up. That's how the ladder works, right? I, I'm wondering if those crying rooms, like if you're in them too long, they'll blast off into space now. I would imagine so, yeah, right? I mean, that sounds like something Bezos would do. You go in there and, and you close it and I see it as some sort of a cryogenic thing, right? It's like, and then it'll be like, welcome to the crying room. You have 30 seconds. Get that cry out and get back on the line. Get the stuff a, shipped. I wonder if there's a bottle in there that you can also urinate in. I saw probably like the truckers do into into the milk. The yeah, milk apparently jugs. Amazon workers they don't have enough time to take breaks, so they have to pee in bottles. Yeah, and it's not just Amazon workers. We can have a bigger conversation about how uh, I think a lot of, of of lower income workers are just absolutely trodden upon and stepped on. Some people yesterday saying Jeff Bezos going into space is proof that billionaires need to be taxed more. Mm. I'll be curious to see ultimately what happens. So you've got the you've got the the kind of uh, you know t- this is real talk. With apologies to our younger listeners, earmuffs for just a second. But it is it's a dick measuring contest between Elon Musk, Richard Branson, and Jeff Bezos right now. Absolutely. And I'll be curious to see how many other billionaires throw their hats into the ring in the private race to space. You can let us know what you think about that. We'll keep an eye on the live chat as mentioned. Our real talk RJ hashtag. Of course, is always moving. Let's get to news of the day. Uh, you you don't have to be paying attention. I don't think hi, you know in, in some sort of a hyper focused sense to know that there's something going on in Western Canada right now when it comes to forestry, in particular in the province of Alberta. Just a few days ago, a 20 year agreement uh, between the government and Crow's Nest Forest Products quietly announced announced over the weekend. Right, a Saturday late afternoon announcement that should always. Real talkers that should always raise your suspicions. If the government is particularly proud about something, it'll make the announcement around 930 in the morning on a Monday or a Tuesday, not at 4 p.m. on a Saturday. Regardless, it impacts the management of about 3,500 kilometers of public land. So what it does, essentially, the government gives a private company control over a public resource. Herein lies the concern. Now, we've got some emails from you about this, and I want to get to these, but let's get to an expert voice. Becky Bestbert Whistle is the Conservation Engagement Coordinator with CPAWS. That's the Canadian Parks and Wilderness Society. The southern chapter of CPAWS has been uh, since 1967, Canada's centennial year, providing science-based support and advice to conserve Alberta's parks and wild spaces. Becky, welcome to the show, and thanks for making time for us today. Morning, Ryan. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah, you bet. So we let, let, let's clarify here what this actually means, this forestry management agreement. I've got some people writing in saying this is absolutely brutal. Private companies are, are the ones that are going to be answering our questions or not answering them. There's no accountability here. Other people are writing in, quite frankly, some of them saying, please don't use my name. But people that have worked in this space on behalf of government administration, they say there's nothing unusual about this. So what's the truth? 
I mean, that's a good point. Forest management agreements do exist across the province. The problem is, is that um, the public wasn't involved at all in the decision um, to sign a new one in the, in the southwest of the province. And this covers 3,500 square kilometers, like you said, and it's a really contested area that has been heavily logged. There's a ton of uh, coal exploration going on there right now as well. It's a really busy industrial landscape. And unfortunately, uh, the government chose to not consult when they decided to give another, yet another private company more decision-making power over the land. Becky, can you can you give us an idea under you know Premier Ed Stelmack or Premier Allison Redford or Premier Dave Hancock or any of the other premiers, Rachel Notley? I mean, what did consultation look like? Did it occur? Is, is, is this unusual? for how the Alberta government's operating? That's a really great question. Um, a lack of transparency when it comes to forestry is like, it has been a problem in Alberta for decades. And it's been something that's just been going on in the background and not many folks have been paying attention to. Um, but this definitely isn't new to this government. Um, the way that forestry is managed and the legislation that governs it, governs it in the province is incredibly um, opaque and very difficult for people to participate in that process. So it's not a new problem. Okay. Can, can we talk about the area here? I mean, this is, <laughs> this is uh, what Livingston uh, porcupine Hills. Can, can you describe it for us? I mean, if somebody's listening in from Newfoundland this morning, what sort of area are we talking about? Yeah. So for the Albertans, this is like uh, from the South boundary of Kananaskis kind of all the way down to highway three. It used to include the castle parks, um, but the, that was removed when the parks were designated. Um, and so this is the eastern slopes of the Rockies. It's what we've been talking about a lot when it comes to coal. Um, it's a really sensitive area. It's our headwaters. It is also home to, you know, many native threatened species, uh, specifically trout. And it's, there's also um, beautiful grasslands in this area and lots of old growth and Lots of people out there recreating, lots of ranchers. It's a really busy landscape, an important landscape already. And by signing this 20-year FMA, the government has really said to Spray Lake Sawmills, which is the parent company of Crow's Nest Forest Products, that they're the priority decision maker on the land. Becky, it can be hard, I think, for the average person, uh, myself included, to stay on top of news stories and make sure that we're up to speed on everything. So when you talk about the castle area, I think people will remember, well, well this is the one that, that when NDP Environment and Parks Minister Shannon Phillips was in that portfolio, this is what the NDP government was looking to establish as that parkland, right? And then the promise came from the United Conservatives it wasn't going to happen, and, and, and there was, uh, I mean, there was, there was a whole bunch of tension around this. Uh, people will yeah, remember so, back so, in the day. So, so what was the status of it, and how would it have changed had it been classified differently in the context of this agreement? So they did go ahead and designate the castle parks. So those are parks, and there's a wildland park associated with it. Um, what happens on the public land that's kind of to the north of it is land use planning, and there's a bunch of land use planning that has yet to be completed in that area, specifically something called the Human Spatial Footprint Plan. So the government was committed to uh, coming up with an analysis of like, how is industry actually happening on this landscape? How much are we as humans taking up from nature here? And um, that's something that they haven't done yet. They haven't completed that study. Others have. The Alberta chapter of the Wildlife Society did an analysis that found the landscape is actually at capacity. Um, so it's really disappointing that they chose 
to not go through um, with that study. I, you have it on screen, right? Um, but it's really disappointing that the government chose not to complete the South Saskatchewan Regional Plan and really understand it a bit better before they made this decision. Why do you think a government, I mean, this may be speculation on your part, but what would motivate a government to skip through a consultation process? Becky, are you with us? All right, it looks like maybe we've lost Becky for a second. Sam will work to get her back. That's totally fine. We're talking to uh, Becky Best, Burt Whistle with the Canadian Parks and Wilderness Society. I wanted to reference here a note. This is an email that we got to talk at ryanjesperson.com. This is from a listener. We'll say Sandy is not her real name, but she's, she's asked that we don't use her real name on air. Says, you know, I, I, I've been listening, I've been tuning in, and I may have some insight on the questions that some of your listeners were asking uh, in emails to elected officials. You remember I read you some of those emails to elected officials about forest management. And up until a couple of years ago, Sandy worked for Alberta Environment and Parks. I'll get to that in just a second as we welcome back Becky Best Burt Whistle. Can you hear me now, Becky? Yeah. Okay, perfect. I, I was I was saying, I, I said this may be speculation on your part, but, but in your mind, what would uh, incline a government to skip consultation when making pretty significant decisions, 20-year contracts in sensitive environmental areas like this? Well, as we've seen with this government, if they're not forced to do a consultation, they're unlikely to undertake one. Um, additionally, you know, the way that forestry has been operating on the eastern slopes and the Rockies here has been really at a breakneck speed, and it's unlikely that they're going to have a lot of timber in the next 30 years past that 20-year contract. So it's definitely a motivation for companies to kind of get it all as quickly as they can right now. Okay, when you said uh, just a moment ago that the land was at capacity, what does that mean? Yeah, it's, uh, you know, I'm not a scientist. I, I like can't speak really well to the science of it, but it's just a concept that the landscape is super busy and the cumulative impacts, um, all these little things. So you've been talking a lot about coal on this show. Um, so the coal exploration that's been going ahead, the forestry that's already been happening in this region, um, the motorized recreation, all these things, um, it really is putting a lot of pressure on the landscape and there's like very few remaining wild areas where, you know, wildlife can find refuge, areas that we need um, for climate resiliency, all of these things. It's really being pushed to capacity and this decision will just make that worse in this area. Do you think people might be surprised at the amount of activity in parkland like this? I mean, I, I know for a lot of people, once you sort of hike into the backcountry or or once you get, you know, into the areas where you can see swaths of land that have that have been logged, uh, do you think that people might, that are, that are typically just traveling through the parks on the highways, you think they might be surprised at the amount of activity back there? For sure. Um, it's something that I would recommend all folks do is really take a drive out and get to places you haven't been before and really look at the reality of what's happening on the ground. I know a lot of folks who are really upset about coal have been getting out on that landscape a bit more and, and trying to get out there and they've been very shocked by the amount of forestry that's already ongoing there. So I would definitely say it's, it's, a, it's a hidden problem to those who aren't out and about every day. I, I got an email. I was just about to jump into this, and I'd love your take on it um, from, from an audience member we'll call Sandy. They've asked that we don't use... Uh, their real name says they worked in Alberta Environment and Parks and regulatory approvals. Uh, this is the area that works on forest management agreements. 
says the first thing that people need to know about FMAs, these forest management agreements, is that you know companies apply for dispositions to do something uh, on public land. In this case, forestry management. They say that you know they're typically awarded twenty-year terms. Nothing unusual about that. They're typically renewable on a regular basis. And I want you to fact-check this. But they say it's true in agriculture, forestry, sand and gravel, peat, and and government of Alberta employees award these agreements. Uh, in accordance with standing instructions from the ministry, only a few become public and even fewer become a big deal. But they say there's huge tension. Uh, this is what Sandy says. Huge tension around what government staff are supposed to do. I mean, are they supposed to just rubber stamp agreements? Are they supposed to act like regulators? They say what happens in each area depends on the manager and whether the manager views themselves as a reviewer or regulator. But they say, thirdly, with with all of these dispositions, before they can be approved, they are subject to controls to protect the environment. Environmental impact assessment reports are required, which includes land experts and wildlife experts conducting reviews. Uh, Sandy goes on to say, I did see projects refused because of important habitat that needs to be protected. In other words, Sandy has has made it sound like there's checks and balances. Would, Would you disagree with that? I think those are good points that Sandy brings up. I think that just because something isn't out of the ordinary doesn't mean it's good. It doesn't mean it's the right thing. Um, There's obviously, we've seen with like the outcry from people about how land is managed, it's not necessarily the best in Alberta right now. And I would also say, sure, there's regulations. Um, This company will be subject to regulations from Alberta Forestry. They will be subject to regulations from Alberta Environment and Parks. I have serious doubts about how and how often and how consistently those regulations will be enforced. We've seen this company in the past destroy critical habitat for native cutthroat trout threatened, and they have faced zero consequence from either the provincial government or the Department of Fisheries and Oceans. So sure, there are regulations on the books, but when it comes, when the rubber hits the road, are they being enforced? No, they're not. Okay. I want to go on. I mean, to be fair, Sandy says, you know, the contract that was signed was probably a standard agreement, um, the same standard form that Alberta Environment uses for all FMAs. It's meant to speed up processing. Uh, Sandy goes on to say there are huge uh, problems in the area of environment. We are told our focus is to be stewarding the land for all Albertans. But in my experience, that doesn't always happen. Uh, She goes on to say, I don't know if this particular FMA is crooked or sideways, but honestly, it could go either way. I saw both in my time at Alberta Environment. So I I really appreciate the candor there from somebody that's worked uh, up until a couple of years ago for Alberta Environment and Parks. So, Becky, what's the what's the call to action here? I mean, is, is it you know, we see the sign over your shoulder there, protect Alberta Parks. It's it's more prominent a lawn sign than I think any election sign I've ever seen. Uh, citizen action has certainly, I think, ramped up. You referenced coal. No surprise there. Um, people are talking big time about how this is the headwaters right to the old man river. That's one of the things I think that people are really concerned about. What's the call to action? Um, so you already brought up a great one. Um, my call to action for this summer, I've been saying is we've all been sitting in front of computers all the time. So my first one is get out there and really learn what's happening on the landscape. Um, I think that's something, you know, having that firsthand knowledge, we can all benefit from that. And, and also having that recharging experience of being out in nature. I think that's really important. So I encourage everybody as your first thing before you start writing angry emails, you know, yeah. get out there and like really take the time to recharge. Um, and then I would also, you know, the way that like, like referencing Sandy's email saying that nothing is out of the ordinary with this FMA, that's true. And that's the problem is that it's, Mm -hmm. it's a structure, the way that forestry has been legislated in this province 
is to keep people out. So this isn't an out of the ordinary decision. Unfortunately, I don't think there's anything that can be done to reverse this decision. But I think, you know, you can always let your MLA know, let the Minister of Forests know, Forestry know that, you know, you're keeping an eye on it. You want more transparency when it comes to these kind of agreements, when it comes to operating plans, when it comes to logging directly on the landscape. How do you reconcile for somebody that has the, you know, Protect Alberta Parks sign on their lawn or somebody that's that's particularly outspoken about this and their next door neighbor or their cousin or their brother says, so what do you want to do? You know, you want to just shut it all down. You want to you just put big, big, you know, fences up around all the parks and and fences up around the Rocky Mountains, the east slopes and, and, and just pretend like nobody needs work. Pretend like nobody in the Crow's Nest Pass has been out of work. Pretend like we don't have natural resources. You think we should just shut down the economy so we can all live in peace, love and harmony. What would you say to somebody like that? You know, I grew up in the town of Hinton, which is both a coal mining and a logging town, so I'm very familiar with both of those industries. I would say, especially when it comes to forestry, uh, for, we're absolutely not saying no logging. There are better ways to do forestry, and the way that it's done in Alberta is regressive and incredibly outdated. There are ways to include uh, community perspectives and harvest plans. There are ways to manage the forest best for the ecosystem. There are ways to make sure you're protecting native species. There are ways to make sure that you're uh, maintaining a diverse forest and protect um, protect communities from forest fires. All of these things, none of them happen in Alberta. So I'm not saying there's like no space for logging. I'm saying we need to like move our logging into the next century and actually like uh, be up to speed. I was about to say thank you so much for your time and it's great to see you and give a shout out to CPAWS and then now I have to say, well, hang on a second though. What are, what are a couple quick points? You say if we need to move logging into the next century. Uh, what are a couple of points that the average lay person could understand on how logging should evolve? Because, I mean, let's be honest, every, everyone's using wood, right? I mean, in, unless your home's yeah. made of, of cast or poured concrete right now, you're, you're, we're part of the problem, aren't we? We don't get to absolve ourselves. We're the ones using wood, too. So what does new school logging look like? So there's a couple of things. There's one called community managed forestry uh, that's happened in a couple of communities in British Columbia. And what that looks like is the community has ownership of um, the mill or the operation. And so they get to decide collectively where logging is happening, um, if it's gonna preserve different values that that community holds. Another point is there is a type of forestry called ecosystem-based management. And that is really taking a wholesome look at everything. And how we do it in Alberta now is the company is looking to maximize their profit, like all companies are. And so they're looking to log the most profitable, the fastest growing, no matter what, that's what they want. Um, and so by looking at it in a more ecosystem-based um, way, there definitely are, are, are avenues to uh, prioritize the environment, prioritize communities, prioritize uh, native species. All right. A native of... Beautiful Hinton, Alberta, the gateway to Jasper National Park. Becky Bestford was home to a Friesen Brothers. That's right. Oh, <laughs> Becky, I almost feel like we should find a way to send you a, a stack of cinnamon buns or something right now. Thanks for making time for us today. Yeah, thanks so much. Yeah, you got Take it. Care. That's Becky Best Burr Whistle. That was that was sharp. That was a sharp move right there at the you end. You can tell she's a real talker. Oh my gosh, she I, knows the Friesen Brothers. I don't know if she's a meat eater or I would I would send her the the braised beef short rib. That's because in Hinton they do it particularly well in Hinton. Hmm. Yeah, this we always we always stop there. Me and my buddy Bins, 
every every year we go together and we we get on a snowcat in Valemont and we spend a couple of days in Jasper National Park. We get over to Valemont, we do some snowboarding, backcountry snowboarding, and we always always on our way through Hinton, stop into the Friesen Brothers and absolutely annihilate a braised beef short rib. Shout out to Hinton. Well, this seems like probably a perfect time to remind you that the team at Friesen Brothers, as a matter of fact, can I show you something else I have? This is just real life. Hey, uh, Sam, we can even take camera four. We're so excited at camera four here. And and this, this is just real life. So this is just this is just my lunch, everybody. No big deal. My lunch from Friesen Brothers. And um, this is real life. They could We couldn't have set this up. I didn't know. So Today, I'm going, you know what? Sometimes you get the great fresh ingredients. You yeah. can make your own dinners. You want to make dinner for yourself. Today, I'm going with the turkey provolone sandwich. Now, as you can see, there's only half of it left because I was staring at it on the trip into work today. And, well, only half made it here. Are you kidding me? Look at the size of this bread. Look at how thick this bread is. The bread side by side is almost as thick as my entire head. And if you ask people how thick my head is, some of them will tell you it's pretty darn thick. This is fresh Alberta turkey, the freshest produce. What an amazing sandwich. Follow Friesen Brothers on Instagram right now. If you check out this post, we wanted to remind you they've got their brand new Friesen Brothers branded barbecue sauce. You've got the original. You've got the hickory. We tried it out this weekend. Absolutely fabulous. Friesen Brothers wants to make sure you have a chance to try it. So five Real Talkers this week are going to get hooked up with a Friesen Brothers barbecue basket. All you need to go is check out that post on their Instagram. Follow the instructions in the description. And we'll be naming five winners that will be able to pick up those barbecue baskets at Friesen Brothers. Beautiful South Edmonton store. Friesen Brothers is Alberta grown and Alberta owned. I just want to hit this sandwich up. I can't, though. I have to wait. What am I doing? Wait, wait. Hopefully we get a guest. We can get a guest with, like, really long answers so I could just keep hitting away at the turkey and provolone sandwich. Uh, we'll see. Uh, taking a look at what we have coming up on the show, a reminder that Dr. Ubaka Ogbogu coming up in about 35 minutes. We're going to be talking about vaccine passports. But in the meantime, an opportunity to check in. Uh, with an individual PhD candidate doing really, really interesting research on right-wing extremism. As a matter of fact, uh, Aden Duraden is uh, affiliated with the Department of Political Science at the University of Toronto. That's where she's working on her PhD, uh, her research examining the recruitment of people within radical right-wing groups in Canada. Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council, doctoral scholar, a junior affiliate at the Canadian Network for Research on Terrorism, Security, and Society, and a fellow at the Canadian Global Affairs Institute. What a pleasure to have you here on the show to share your expertise. Thanks for making time for us today. Thank you so much for having me. How, how did this wind up on your radar? When, when did you first take a look at the rise of extremism and say, this is what I am dedicating my doctoral research to? Uh, so this is very interesting because I started my PhD research in 2015. And at that time, ISIS was a big thing in the news. And everybody wanted to know, why are these foreign fighters joining this group, uh, especially from Western countries when they live in you know such a comfortable society? And that was actually my research proposal at the time when I applied for admission. Uh, but two, uh, two years in, while I was doing my coursework and uh, finishing up my comprehensive exam, uh, around 2017, the Charlottesville rally happened. And at that time, my supervisor actually suggested that uh, I should look into right-wing extremism because a lot of people are looking at ISIS, Al-Qaeda, and other religious-based extremism anyway. So your 
research will be of more use by the time you graduate. So the credit goes to her for suggesting that I should look at right wing extremism. But isn't the timing interesting? I mean, it's almost like you started uh, really honing in your focus there as the rise was happening uh, to what do you attribute it you'll oftentimes hear people say well it was you know you know former president donald trump emboldened people or maybe it was the internet that that you know the prevalence of social media allowed people to better organize or gather or share their views what do you think it was what were you picking up on in, in 2015 and 2017 and, and right now for that matter yeah, so um, a lot of people sometimes find it surprising, but uh, right-wing extremism is not new, neither in Canada, not around the world. So even in Canada, it has been, you know, we had KKK here, there was skinheads in the 80s. So it has been um, a part of our, our country as well as around the world. What happened around uh, 2016, 2017, when people th thought that it was a rise, it was just that uh, leaders like Trump or Brexit that happened um, kind of gave an avenue um, and it almost made um, if these people feel that it's okay now to be public with their views and you know like come out because oh there's other people like us so these political uh, uh, movements as you say or or these political events kind of um, almost uh, connected them with, with each other and uh, you're right internet played a big role in it that it's not just that uh, you know it gave people ideas people might have had ideas already internet just helped them connect with each other because now a person in Europe who holds uh, you know an extremist ideology can connect with a person in Canada who can connect with a person in the United States who can connect you know with a person in UK so you know now it's the connection also makes it seem like you know it's rising but it it's not. It was just there before. It's now they're coming together. So it seems, you know, that, oh, it is just happening right now. One of the things you'll find in, the, in, in what I find to be a, a rather unproductive forum and that, you know, these are places like Twitter and the comments section where where people are going back and forth, you know, arguing, well, look at these right wing extremists and people say, well, what about this group? What about these guys? You know, and do I even want to name them because people will blow a gasket, right? If I start, they say, well, don't compare this group with that group. But you know exactly what I'm getting at. Is there, is there a discernible difference or, or what would you find to be most notable if we were to talk about right wing extremism versus left-wing extremism. Yeah, um, uh, so I want to make it clear that when I say right-wing extremism, it's it's very different than, you know, just people, if they're just on the right or if they just don't like government, uh, government interference in their personal matters. Because when, it, when we say the term right-wing extremism, uh, we are looking at themes which, uh, you know, which are driven by racism, xenophobia, uh, and it's not just that you want less government interference, it's that sometimes you think government is illegitimate and it should hold no authority over you. Um, and it also often goes back to a past, an imagined past, where you think that your group was the one that had a superior position and you want to go back to that. It is also very much uh, uh, um, uh, focused on male-dominated society. So it also doesn't like homosexuality, interracial marriage, mixed procreation, um, and it justifies violence, you know, when it comes to defending your racial, cultural, religious purity. Um, so that's what makes it right-wing extremism. Extremism, And you're right. I mean, you can, you know, you can compare it to other types of extremism. You could say that, you know, we have left-wings, uh, left-wing extremism, a lot of people would bring Antifa into it. The difference, though, is that at the moment, at least if you look in Canada and the attacks that have been committed, the violent attacks, 
they have been committed by people who are uh, inspired by ideology or on the right-wing extremist side of the spectrum. Antifa could get into like street brawls and show up, show up as counter-protesters, but we haven't had a violent attack in recent times, you know, by left-wing extremists, if you were to say, if you were to classify them as such. But right-wing extremists, we, we did see attacks within Canada. Can you talk to us about some of your research when, when you compare, you know, recruits or non-recruits within radical groups in Canada, far-right groups, Islamist groups, uh, through a gendered lens. Can you tell us what yeah. you've been what you've been observing? Yeah. So this is very interesting, and this is a common theme between both um, right-wing groups and uh, Islamist groups. So first, I'll talk about recruitment in general, and then I'll focus on the gender aspect of it. So with recruitment, um, the thing is that a lot of researchers wanted to know: okay, what is motivating these people to join? You know, like what happened in their life? We need to figure it out. But since 9-11, there has been a lot of research and we do not have the perfect cocktail, like, you know, what motivates someone to join? But we do have, you know, certain variables that seem to come up again and again. So that can include, you know, maybe you suffered a personal trauma while growing up. Maybe, you know, you had a network of friends who were already involved and they kind of pulled you into it. Maybe there is a government policy that you don't like and you cannot find an avenue in mainstream politics. So you go to, you know, these groups that are talking about this issue. Um, So uh, a lot of these things are present, but their, um, uh, their order could be different. So for example, it's possible that if I wanted to join a group, I might be, I might suffer a personal trauma first. Then I had a friend who kind of said, oh, you know what? I belong to this group. You come, like attend a meeting, uh, you know, and see what it's about. Maybe you'll like it. And then I go there and then I'm like, okay, I like these people and I'm gonna like join this group. On the other hand, you know, my friend uh, might be that not interested in politics, doesn't care about anything, um, you know, but uh, suddenly government does something, you know, um, let's say creates a tax and they're like, whoa, like, I don't want to pay this tax, you know, and then nobody's talking about it. So, so they think, okay, well, who can I I talk to and then they then find a group that is talking about it which is not a mainstream political group so they will go to the group first and then you know that group will then radicalize them so basically the idea is that we know some of the main factors we just don't know the order because the order can differ from like person to person um and that can you know relate to whether it's religious extremism or right-wing extremism the gendered part which is interesting in both of them is that they are both ideologically very male dominated. Like right-wing groups are very clear that their ideal version of society is men, a male breadwinner, you know, who who takes care of the family, a woman's job is to bear children and teach the ideology, pass it on to the next generation. And it is the same with uh, religious extremists as well. Um, And the both of them want women in support roles. So when they target women or when they tell them, you know, that this is a good place to join, they give them um, the rhetoric of you are so important to the movement. Without you, we will not have the next generation. Without you, we wouldn't be able to pass on the ideas. So they tell them that they are important, but only in support roles. They would never let a woman become a leader of the group. Uh, You know, it's very unlikely that that would happen. That doesn't mean that there aren't women in the groups who want to and who still challenge this traditional, um, you know, uh, patriarchal version. But both of these groups are very clear in their ideas about women, and it is about them being in support roles. Hmm. 
One of the big stories, uh, I don't know off the top of my head, you, you may remember what month it was or how long ago it was, but, but when uh, Gavin McInnes's group, the Proud Boys, were classified as a terror group in Canada, it, I think it, it, it certainly got a lot of people talking about the definition of terrorism and who qualifies and what it means and what the implications are. When you evaluate the job that Canada is doing, and I'll leave the question wide open and broad on purpose, so we could be talking about CSIS, the RCMP, the federal government, uh, Canadian special interest groups, nonprofits, researchers like yourself, talk hosts like me. Let's get into this. How, how, how does Canada stack up against the rest of the world in monitoring and even in some cases, if possible, curbing the recruitment of these people and the growth of the spread of these extremist ideologies? Yeah, so I would say yeah, you're, you're right. So we, we put Proud Boys on terrorist entity list, I believe, along with three or four other groups in February. And then Ju in June, we put three more entities on the terrorist and uh, three more right wing entities, right wing extremist entities on our uh, terrorist terrorist list, which shows that Canada is certainly ahead, you know, when it comes to whether compared to the United States or Europe when in classifying these groups as terrorist groups and not just, you know, extremist groups who are xenophobic. Um, so it's certainly ahead in that sense. Um, but an interesting thing to note here is that when it comes to, um, uh, if you look at the threat reports, whether it's thesis, whether it's RCMP, they have also talked about that this is um, a threat that is increasing. However, they haven't said that, you know, it's more than the religious extremist threat yet, but they have just said that, you know, this is a threat that's increasing. Um, so it seems like the, it is certainly on their radar because they are looking at what's happening in the United States and what's happening in Europe. Uh, because if we just focus on Proud Boys, for example, Proud Boys United States was definitely very instrumental in the January 6th Capitol um, Hill, um, you know, fiasco that happened there. Uh, but Proud Boys Canada is different. You know, our ch their chapters are local, they're fragmented, they're not as organized um, as the U.S. Proud Boys, yet we put Proud Boys um, on our terrorist entity list. And after that, Proud Boys Canada kind of dissolved. They said, we are not a group anymore because they, they I think, I believe in their statements, they said like, we are plumbers, electricians, we're not terrorists. So we're, you know, it doesn't make sense that you put us on a terrorist ent entity group. So they just disbanded. Even, but the Proud Boys US is still in place. Um, so it just shows that uh, within Canada though, the, uh, we are looking at what's happening in other countries. I think our security and intelligence agencies have openly said in their threat report that it is a threat that's increasing. I also want to add that Canada was the first country in the world that brought a terrorist charge against an incel uh, attack. So it wasn't the Alec Manassian attack in Toronto. It was one, I believe it was a Toronto spa attack, it's called. It was after. And Canada was the first country to brought a terrorist charge against an in, uh, individual motivated by, motivated by incel ideology. So I would say we are definitely ahead both compared to Europe as well as uh, United States it's not necessarily is it the, the the rally around one idea that can drive an individual or motivate a group I guess, I guess what I mean by that is I've seen the same familiar faces showing up at protests around a carbon tax showing up against protests against the United Nations and Sharia law and United Nations Bill 21, and for that matter, vaccines and mask mandates and all kinds of things. How do you make sense of that? Is, is, it, is it a greater motivator, simply a, a pushback against society or a pushback against status quo? Do you know what I'm asking? 
Yeah, yeah, I completely get your point. And I think um, so, uh, you're absolutely right that um, within Canada, so if we talk about right-wing extremist movement in Canada, it's very decentralized, it's very fragmented. And the reason that you see the same people in different kind of protests, it's also because uh, because they're, it's fragmented, they fight with each other. So the same person could be a member of Proud Boys today, then something happened and they will change and they will join to like Wolves of Odin or Soldiers of Odin. Something will happen. Then they're like, I am not part of any group, but I'm still part of the movement because I am still like anti-authority. And I believe in some conspiracy theories, theories, et cetera. So this is the issue in Canada is that there is no, um, it's not a centralized hierarchical movement where you can clearly say that, okay, this person is a right-wing extremist and this person is just anti-authority because they move in and out uh, in, in, you know, in both directions. And the reason being, again, you know, let's say, let's pick an example of an anti-vaxxer, right? Let's say you just don't want vaccine, you don't like them, you believe the conspiracy theories about them, etc. You feel that there is nothing in the mainstream that's talking about it. And the only protests that are being organized are maybe by groups who are, you know, more on the more extremist side of the spectrum. So you will show up at that protest. That doesn't mean that you support everything that that group stands for. That also doesn't mean that you are a member of that group, but you will show up at that protest. And so from the outside looking in, it, it could seem that, oh, they're all together. Um, however, they can sometimes be together, but sometimes can also not be together. They might just also be coming together on a one particular issue because they don't seem there is any other avenue that is talking about the issue in the same way. I think you've hit a uh, nail on the head there, Dan, and, I, and I've seen it from people, people that I know, in fact, some people either citing statistics or citing reports or parroting some messaging um, where I've sat there almost shocked because these are critical thinkers, or at least I thought, and I'm sitting there going, are you are you aware of who you're citing or what you're referencing? I mean, are, are you aware of the source of this perspective? And, and I think that a lot of people are not. But there have been in particular in the in 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 comments around COVID-19 and in, in people's understanding or maybe lack of understanding around things like public health policy and the science behind how these diseases spread, et cetera, someone will see something can I call it an alternative fact? Uh, in, in other words, a mistruth. Uh, I guess we would colloquially call it bullshit. And their detector doesn't go off, right? Instead, they see it and they wonder, well, why is nobody else talking about this? I don't see it on the CBC. I don't hear it on Jesperson. The Globe and Mail's not writing about it. Why are people trying to suppress this information? And then it fuels their sense that this is some sort of a, a greater conspiracy, Right. And the, the, the freedom fighters that are the ones that are the, the only ones that have the guts to talk about this are the ones that they all of a sudden align themselves with. I mean, to say something quite obvious, uh, the Internet and the misinformation campaigns, we talked about this last week on the show, play into this in a, a huge way. And I'm not sure that every member of society has the tools necessary to be able to recognize problematic information when they encounter it. Yeah, and uh, a very interesting thing is, so there was a research by Moonshot CV, I believe it's a nonprofit in the UK. Uh, so right after uh, we went into lockdown last year, uh, they found that within Canada, the searches for right-wing terms 
went, you know, they, they were pretty high. Uh, again, this doesn't mean that everybody who's searching for these terms is a right-wing extremist, but again, when we are in an environment where there's uncertainty, like right after we went into lockdown, we don't know, do we wear masks, do we not wear masks, how long are we going to stay in lockdown? People are looking for some information to give them certainty, and they will latch on to if it's coming from a source, it's coming from a questionable source, but if it gives them certainty, um, you know, they will they will kind of pick, pick up on that. And another research was done by Institute of Strategic Dialogue. They did one last year and they did one this year as well, just came out. And they found that Canadians, uh, the number of Canadians were engaging with this um, material online compared to the internet using population is very high. Um, so this is another thing that we, you know, when even if we don't see all the people on the streets, it is certainly something that Canadians are engaging with. And the number has gone up compared to last year to this year. Um, so, uh, you know, it's uh, people are, you know, there is something about this material that people are searching for, even if they don't believe it 100%, you know. It, do you think it's the numbers giving them some sort of information? Yeah. Do you think yeah. the numbers are on the, I mean, do, would you say that the numbers are on the rise directly due to the pandemic and the associated factors? Do you think it's that or could it just be, I mean, is it just the trend is just continuing up regardless? Um, so uh, the research showed that you know that it was uh, part of it is related to COVID um, yeah. and the, uh, the resulting government restrictions. Um, and another thing that the the report also noticed was that um, you know tech companies of course crack down on these accounts, uh, but they still kind of get back up in another shape or form. The only time that they saw a reduced um, amount uh, uh, of accounts or information was on YouTube because a lot of these influencers are not moving to bitch shoot and other types of streaming video streaming platforms and on twitter twitter was another one where you know the engagement was a bit down because twitter is becoming very fast and kind of taking down some of these accounts but on some of the other you know 4chan hn kind of uh, forums something goes down like it, it's back up in one form or another we've another. had uh, we've had really interesting conversations with with the experts on this and I would, I would i would include you on the list i'm curious to know your take on this uh, we, we talked about on, on the heels of the Capitol attack on January 6th about about some of these big social media platforms deplatforming some of the really big accounts, including President Donald Trump, probably the most prominent one in your mind. Are social media platforms, uh, I would say internet regulators, but there's really no such thing. Uh, are they doing enough? Are you comfortable and confident that some of these big mega corporations, some of the biggest companies in the world, Facebook included, are, are doing enough? And, and do you have concerns that with a lot of these voices and perspectives being forced underground, that they're there festering and growing outside scrutiny? Um, yeah, so this is uh, this is a fascinating debate within academic community, and there is no no consensus uh, precisely because of the fact. So, so, so I'll, I'll give you an example that uh, when the New Zealand mass shooting happened, the New Zealand government released a report, and they noted that YouTube played a critical role um, in in the attackers' radicalization. Uh, however, um, other researchers have said that you know it's not internet that radicalizes people; it's that you're already radicalized. And you just go on the internet and look for the information that proves your point. And I think we can look at it in our, maybe our personal lives too. Like when we go to the internet, which sources are we looking for? Are we deliberately looking for sources that disagree with our point of view? Or do we just look at sources that already agree with it? Um, so I think internet is just such an important part of our lives now that 
for tech companies to take it out and to you know take down information yes it might you know give you um, give you some sense of um, you know control in that you know if somebody's live streaming an attack you know like stop it they shouldn't be having that kind of power within them but a, a lot of these small time influencers like if you take out their accounts then they you know they can just pop that back up they also learn that you know for example if they realize that this is a racist term or you know this is a sexist term that the the platform will take down they will come up with a different term and then within the community they will know this is still this it's just that you know the tech platform will not pick it up or they will make jokes about it and then defend it oh that was just a joke it's not like we actually meant to say it right um so they're very clever like they they will kind of work around uh, you know whether it's the language of it or whether it's you know the restrictions or when they know how tech platforms make decisions about mm -hmm. censorship clever or cockroachish depending on your perspective they'll keep popping up no matter how much you try to stifle it right so so here's the thing we know that uh you know regardless of uh circumstance or or uh you know example i, I mean i'm inclined to to you know consider you know anti-semitism and, and and the horrific culmination of, of public attitudes that occurred uh, in Europe and, of course, around the world in the 1930s into the 1940s. I mean, the Holocaust, and you've got these nations in particular, uh, Germany and Austria, where, where you know, the, the idea of never again it was, it was taught in schools and, and in the context even of, of residential schools in Canada. We've been having conversations around how Germany teaches young children about its history in an unflinching way and makes sure that people are educated about it and they understand, yet still... Uh, in particular in Austria, but around the world, you see a rise or at least, you know, the, the continuance of these anti-Semitic attitudes. They don't go away. Uh, even after we see genocide, even after we see the Holocaust, they do not go away. And I imagine people would probably argue the same about some of the perspectives we see driving right-wing extremism. We can have all of the, the conversations. You and I can talk. Thousands of people can listen to the podcast and share it around, but it's not going to change everybody's mind. Do you think that we as a society can stamp out extremism, or is it something, I hate to put it this way, that we have to learn to deal with and manage and address as it continues to exist. Yeah, so as I said, you know, when people are becoming radicalized or when they are joining a group, that's a very individual process, you know, based on what's happening in that person's individual life and how they are being impacted by what's happening around them. So in the field of countering violent extremism, the focus is always that, okay, if you see like, you know, a 15, 16, 17 year old, you know, getting into um, um, maybe online, getting into getting in with people who, who hold extremist views or offline with his or her friends, um, then the best role that can be played by is, um, you know, people in that person's life that could be, you know, teachers, counselors, um, if they can get access to a psychologist or, you know, uh, their family. Governments, you know, government policies, we have seen this from religious extremists, tend to be overbearing and governments don't really do a good job of curbing extremism. So if it has to be, it will not ever be like 100% stop because we cannot possibly control every person who is on radicalization path. Uh, but um, uh, 
a, a, we can certainly kind of um, lessen the problem somewhat if there is more resources for social services uh, who can work with individuals one-on-one, -on -one, as opposed to making state policies, specifically dealing with right-wing extremism, because a very central point is being anti-authority, is being anti-government. So government telling them, please don't do this, I don't think they're going to be very, very open to that message. Yeah, no kidding. Uh, I so appreciate your your perspective on this, and 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 the research that you're doing is obviously so important. You've been hearing from Aden Duraden, a researcher on right wing extremism, a PhD candidate uh, in the Department of Political Science at the University of Toronto, working. Uh, of course, with the Canadian Network for Research on Terrorism, Security and Society, as well as the Canadian Global Affairs Institute. Really appreciate your perspective this morning. Keep up the amazing work. Thanks, Dan. Thank it's you so uh, much for yeah. This me. is uh, I, I mean, th these are the types of conversations. I'd be curious to know, real talkers, uh, how you feel about what you've just heard and, and maybe what you're seeing in your neck of the woods. You can talk about pulling down videos or shutting down sites or canceling accounts, but but does it address the root of the problem? Does it address the rot uh, that causes this? And, and I think probably the obvious answer would be no, right? It's it's a it's a way to try to address the spread of misinformation on social media, as an example. I, I think back to a friend of mine. I'm not calling him a right wing extremist by any stretch, but I think he's he's been misled and he's a little bit confused. And I and, I, and I'm disappointed. And I've communicated to him. I'm disappointed at, at at the the path that he's taken over the past couple of years. And it started to flare up with some 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 things that were almost sort of perfectly fine. I mean, you know, different or unpopular political opinions or or political opinions that may have been popular within certain circles. But then it expands and turns into something more serious where all of a sudden some of the some of the assertions that he would make or that he does make or or some of the claims or some of the, the, the sites of information that he would source or some of the opinions he would share publicly as a professional and a family man, you're sitting there going, what are you doing? And then as soon as some of the videos that he started sharing would be wiped and taken down, he would take it as proof of the conspiracy against it, of the effort to suppress that information, right? Why would they, hey, if this wasn't true, if this wasn't, if we weren't on to something, why would they be working so hard to cancel us? Why would they be working hard, so hard to wipe it? And I mean, for me, when it was pandemic related stuff and, and in, in his circumstance, it was almost exclusively related to COVID-19 and research science and, and things like numbers of, of hospitalized people and deaths. He'd be calling it a fraud. He'd be calling it fake, calling it the scamdemic. You sit there and you ask the guy, like, what's sort of driving this man? And, and there seemed to be this sense, and I think there is this sense of a of a greater distrust in authority, in government, a belief that certain political parties have certain mandates to push certain things onto the people. And it starts to get to the point where all of a sudden you have, you know, a buddy of mine told me that his aunt right now, he can't talk to his aunt anymore because he said she literally believes, she literally believes that the vaccine, the COVID-19 vaccine contains a microchip. And she has gone down this rabbit hole, and now this otherwise rational woman is now putting this stuff out there at family dinners or on family Zoom calls, and they can't handle it anymore. But I, the thing that concerns me is those are the spaces that um, those conversations need to be had as the research 
uh, that was just cited, you know, mentions the idea that if the government does come down hard on it, um, that people just then say, oh, it's the government with a heavy handed blah, blah, blah. So to me, I mean, I have a very similar experience. I, I, my uncle was writing really <sighs> challenging things. Just, I was very, very concerned and I, I flagged it for him and I flagged it for other family members. And I, you know, I was, he deleted me on Facebook. Huh. Maybe did you a favor along the way. <laughs> but, but it's kind of like, now I'm concerned because it's now I can't even see and I can't engage and I can't flag when those, when he's, he's posting erroneous information. Yeah. I mean, I think sometimes, and I, I hate to put it this way and I'm probably will we'll get checked by some people for saying this. Sometimes you got to cut the cord. And people say, well, then that's when people start to go off into the, you know, yeah. that, that's where people sort of drop off the radar. And then the next thing you know, something horrific happens because you haven't maintained those connections. But at the same time, you have conversations with people. How do you think certain friendships will be affected based on some of the things that have happened with COVID-19? And the answer oftentimes is permanently. How do you think that these strained relationships will be affected permanently? Because people have seen sides of people they care about that they weren't aware of or that are new or that have been suppressed and are now surfacing right some random guy on the live chat says confirmation bias is a powerful thing mm. fatima says canadian government needs to act better monitoring online spaces for hate they need to act with a new special unit to identify and de-radicalize individuals who seek to harm we've had mubin shake on the show before he he, he has been de-radicalized and now he's doing amazing work uh, you know he's worked with CSIS in past that's one of my i mean that was an interview i think on this show several months ago that's certainly worth checking out you can find all of our past interviews of course by subscribing to our podcast thanks to everybody who not just subscribes but also takes the time to rate and leave a review you can also find it as part of our our youtube archive as well lisa says that's the biggest thing what you mentioned if they won't let us talk about it then that's proof that it's true. Lisa says, ugh, right? We've got, I mean, some, some great comments on here. Wigwith says they, people are always finding, extremists can always find alternative forms of communication. Has anybody seen this new freedom phone? I've never seen this freedom phone. We should dig into oh, that. Geez. That sounds pretty interesting. And others are saying, you know, with, with regards to extremism and what prompts it or maybe what leads to it, Lawlessness says extreme right wing or conspiracy theory beliefs and justifications. They never stand alone. They're always based in whataboutism. Tiana says people talk about the intellectual dark web regarding this right wing pipeline. It's largely out in the open and oftentimes well regarded. Uh, comments about microaggressions. Lisa says, unfortunately, my partner's mom is a conspiracy theorist. and I find myself tiptoeing around conversations at times. It can be difficult to discuss issues. Yeah, I mean, I, I know that we're not alone here on this. We always are curious to hear your thoughts. As, as you listen to this interview and you, you take time to think about it, you can always send us an email to talk at ryanjesperson.com. Arnold says left-wing extremism is that it's most visible in whataboutism arguments made by people who feel the need to defend right-wing extremism. It's true, right? 
Look at these guys storming the Capitol. Look at this. What a, this is one of the most disgraceful moments in American history. I didn't see you saying the same thing about Antifa or Black Lives Matter. People bring it. The whataboutism there is one that, that comes into play all the time. That's right well, or that's, wrong. That, but that's false equivalence because the, the storming of the Capitol was violent and uh, people got hurt. To compare storming the Capitol to Black Lives Matter is, is quite frankly, idiotic. Thank you. <laughs> That's how to cut to the chase on that one. We're going to talk to Dr. Ubaka Ogbogo. I don't mean to just dismiss things, but every once no, in a while, that, you got to call it. it. I mean, that's the real talk. Call it how you see it. I mean, that's just an absolutely idiotic comparison. Not to absolve anybody of violence or, or whatever at any stretch. And we can talk about all the different manifestations of, of civil disobedience and protest and what, what you like. Precisely civil disobedience. But it doesn't, that yeah. doesn't, uh, that, that's not equivalent to storming the Capitol, beating police officers with, with flagpoles, uh, you know, carrying firearms into Senate chambers. Like, give me a break. Getting ready to lynch people. Who gets to go first here on the... Uh, advertising mentions coming out of that one hot i know the team at park power won't mind it because they're the ones that power our hashtag real talk rj sarah keeps an eye on that by the way uh, before we get to dr ubaka ogbogu in just a moment we'll, we'll check in on our twitter poll today but first let me remind you that the team at park power online gives you an opportunity to check and compare rates on internet electricity and natural gas if you live in the province of alberta why not take your business to the business that gives back to the community 10 percent of its profits on electricity go back to non-profits and you get to choose which one from a big long list at parkpower.ca if you're online and on their website make sure you punch in when you take your business over there the promo code 2021-REALTALK, and they're going to give you $70 off your first bill at parkpower.ca. That could be residential, it could be commercial, whatever your industrial, whatever it is, 70 bucks off your first bill. The team at Local Waste is in the business of creating great relationships, integrity, driving their process as it has done for the last quarter century. It's why they'll commit their resources, theirs, to getting you out of a bad contract you may be in when it comes to who's picking up your garbage bins, who's looking after that service for you. They love to compete for your business, and they know that there can be some shadiness in the industry. It's why they have made integrity their core value. If you've signed a contract you're not happy about and it's not working out for you, give Mikel, Lauren, and Chris a call. You can look them up under localwaste.ca and a reminder, Trash Talk coming up on Friday. That's presented by Local Waste. Submit your rants to us to talk at ryanjesperson.com. I always say try to keep your trash talk tight so we can get in as many as we can. I got one the other day from a fella by the name of Luke, and it is, it's an essay. And I'm sitting there reading it. And I'm going, I can't cut. I can't edit this. I can't cut it. There's, I have to, it, it works, it would be like if you were, you know, to read a poem by, I don't know, Walt Whitman or something like that and say, I'm just going to edit this down into a haiku. Well, you better not. And at the same time, I'm reading Luke's email and I'm going, I don't know if I can do the trash talk voice the entire time. That's going to blow the vocal cords. It'll be a good thing. It's the last thing we do the entire broadcast week. Well, we've been talking about vaccines. And, and, and this will shift a little bit, although I think our next guest will probably have something to say, maybe about what we just heard here. But first, before we do check in with Dr. Ubaka Ogbogu, let's take a look at today's unofficial, unscientific Twitter poll. We posted this uh, just a couple of hours ago, about, about an hour and a half ago, asking passport or not. And here's where I think our guest will take issue with the question. Passport or not, do you support Canada requiring some form of proof of vaccination to travel? 
uh, so far about 1,500 votes, 1,542, an hour and a half in, 91%. That's 90.7% say yes. Nine out of 10. You would call that overwhelmingly yes. About 6% say no, and about 3% say I need more information. Well, this is something that our next guest has been talking about. Dr. Ubako Ogbogu is an associate professor in the Faculty of Law and the Cates Research Fellow in Health Law and Science Policy at the University of Alberta. He's a, a fellow at the Pierre Elliott Trudeau Foundation and a good friend of this show. Doctor, welcome back. It's good to see you. It's great to be back, Ryan. Thank you for having me on. Absolutely. So, so we asked the question today, passport or not, do you support Canada requiring some form of proof of vaccination to travel? And I, and I suspect you're going you're gonna to hone in on the word passport because that's a pretty important one. <laughs> I think it's important that we take some time to unpack that word because it's been very controversial. Uh, a lot of people are talking about a lot of things uh, and they use the term passport or proof of immunization. People are having all these arguments about terminology. Uh, so I think it's important to sort of uh, parse that a little bit. Uh, the issue here is not whether uh, the government of Canada should uh, provide people with some proof of immunization status that they can use to travel to, to places. Uh, I'm going to New York uh, in September, and uh, it would be nice if I get to the United States and at the point of entry, they say to me, have you been vaccinated? It would be nice to show them something that shows I've been vaccinated. I think that makes sense, but that's not what I think the debate is about. Uh, so I think your poll... Uh, is one that you know shows that people support the idea that I just talked about, but I don't think that that's what the debate is really about. Some people have talked about the fact that uh, school-age kids have to present proof of uh, immunization status before they start school. Again, that's not what we're talking about. Uh, others have talked about the fact that when they travel to certain places, they are asked to provide uh, proof of travel vaccines. Uh, say, for example, that they've been vaccinated for yellow fever or for diseases that are endemic in the places that are going to. That's not what we're talking about. The term passports, as it's being used in the context of the current debate, relates to the question of whether the government should provide proof of COVID-19 vaccination uh, so that people can use that for domestic purposes, so that they can use that to access domestic activities like going to a restaurant, going to a gym, going to the grocery store. And I think that's an issue that deserves some focus, some really sharp focus and attention, because it is quite unusual. We haven't seen uh, that kind of uh, um, action or program uh, in Canada, really. Um, we've seen the examples I've given before, but we've not seen this particular example where we're, where, the where we're saying the government should um, provide some proof of immunization status to access domestic activities. So far, two provinces have actually introduced something uh, along these lines and that is uh, the province of Manitoba and the province of Quebec. And uh, Quebec makes it very clear that they are not talking about proof of immunization for in, in the context in which I've talked about. They are talking about whether or not the government should certify COVID immunization status so that people can use that to access gyms, bars, and other domestic activities. So whether you call it passport or not, it doesn't matter. That's the issue. But if, if, uh, if I own a restaurant, and I make a decision, a personal decision, because it's a private business that I will only allow people in who are vaccinated, then wouldn't it make sense to have some form of standardized proof of vaccination that I could refer to? I mean, I've, I've taken a look 
even at people's different documentation, all looks different. Everybody's documentation looks different depending on the pharmacy you went to, depending on the vaccine that you got. And I would imagine, number one, that there could be forgery. And, and number two, it just seems like that's not how, as a society, we operate. I, I agree with that. I think it makes sense if we're going to do it, that we should have some standardized way of doing it. I think that makes perfect sense. But that to me is not a question. The question is, should we do it? Hmm. Is it good to do it? If we agree that it's good to do it, then sure, the government should step in and provide something that is standardized. But we need to answer the initial question as to whether or not it is ethical and legal and good to do it. I don't believe that it is. Uh, and my reason will actually surprise a lot of people. My main reason will surprise a lot of people. My main reason is that uh, I don't think we should go to what I consider to be an option that is going to be very controversial uh, and which we don't have any evidence that it's going to be effective. Uh, when we haven't tried some things that I think will be much more responsible and ethical to do first before we try vaccine passports. So let me sort of see if I can sort of relate that in a way that makes best sense. We are always looking for the one size fits all solution to solving the vaccination uptake problem. We've tried vaccine lotteries before, as you know. We're, we're always thinking one thing is gonna solve it. But presently we do not understand why people are not getting vaccinated and who is not getting vaccinated in the context of COVID-19. For other vaccines that we have, say for childhood vac uh, vaccines, we have better information as to the reasons why people, especially in Alberta, are not getting vaccinated. For COVID-19, we don't have really good information about that yet. So it doesn't make any sense to me to try to solve a problem with a tool like that, like a vaccine passport, where you don't actually know the nature of the problem. So I think both sides of the argument are kind of, they've got it all wrong, to be honest. We need to first understand why people are not getting vaccinated. And then we then target our solutions to those reasons to assume that people are not getting vaccinated because they haven't been prevented from going to bars and karaoke joints. That seems a little bit silly to me. You know, some people are not getting vaccinated because they don't have access to medical care. Some are not getting vaccinated because of a religious belief that a vaccine passport will not change. If I believe that uh, God wants me to die of COVID-19 and I don't want to get vaccinated, stopping me from going to a bar is not going to change my mind. Yeah. I, I mean, I, I feel like I'm, I'm, uh, I'm going to go toe-to-toe -to -toe with somebody here that, and I'm greatly outmatched, and, and so I'll acknowledge that. But, but let me say this, is, is that a, as, a, as an individual that would, you know, I would prefer... If I'm going to be on an airplane or if I'm going to be in a tight enclosed space with somebody, my personal preference, and, and quite frankly, I don't care what anybody thinks about my personal preference in so many ways as their personal preference is none of my business. I just want to make sure that I, if I'm in close proximity with somebody that's not vaccinated, that I would have a heads up. I don't care why. And again, I'm not a policy expert and I'm not the premier and I'm not the prime minister, but I don't <laughs> care whether it's because you're jehovah's witness or because you don't trust the science of the vaccine or because of whatever else that doesn't matter to me what matters to me is you are vaccinated or are not vaccinated and it seems to me like maybe part of the conversation that you're having unless i'm misunderstanding is talking about getting people or, or maybe removing vaccine hesitance and isn't that a separate conversation like i don't i don't know that i've heard people talk about the vaccine passport as a method to motivate people to get the vaccine well, it is fundamentally a method to motivate people to get the vaccine. If not, it wouldn't make any sense to actually have it. You know, if 
you introduce a vaccine passport and you're not raising vaccination rates, then what are you doing? You're creating a two-tier society where you're saying only the vaccinated can enjoy the things we have in society. Maybe that's the kind of society that some people want to live in. Uh, but I think the reasons why people don't get vaccinated are complex. And I'm sure you, Ryan, as you're sitting in your uh, airplane, would like to know uh, the reasons why your neighbor is not getting vaccinated. I think you're compassionate enough to know. And if it's a reason that can be solved, I think you want your provincial government to focus on solving it. So, so for example, your neighbor is a single mother who can't find time off work to do this and who's worried that when she gets vaccinated, she might have side effects. And uh, when she does have side effects, she's going to have to take time off work and she can't afford that. And there's no paid sick leave for her uh, to, to fall back on. I'm sure you will want to know this. And I'm sure you want to say to her, well, maybe let's push the government first to try and get you vaccinated. Uh, you know, maybe let's create a system that allows you to get vaccinated without having to suffer what you what I just described uh, before we bar you from going to the mall or from a bar or to karaoke or from joining me on this on this flight. That to me, those two things are linked, I think. So do you, and, and you're right about the empathy side. I mean, if you're talking about the single mother that, that can't get a day off work to get vaccinated or people in remote communities or people that systemically have been denied equitable health care, then obviously to me, that's a different conversation. Do you then inherently disagree with any form of policy that would draw a line of access between the unvaccinated and the vaccinated? On principle, do you disagree? No, I don't disagree on principle, but I just think that we don't have the information to make that an option right now. We can discuss it in theory, and when we're discussing it in theory, people will have opinions one way or the other. Again, I, I like to refer us back to the vaccine lottery. When that was introduced, people also talked about, oh, it's going to work, it's not going to work. The truth starts from the United States at us. Uh, you know, it worked in the United States, it's going to work here. But did it work? I don't think so, right? Mm. It did not work. That's the truth. It didn't raise vaccination, vaccination rates. So that, to me, is a waste of $3 million that could have been spent on doing what I'm describing, which is trying to find ways to understand why people are not getting vaccinated and seeing if we can actually alleviate those reasons. Now, in principle, let's say we get to a point where we have, we have done made efforts to get people vaccinated, right? And we're dealing with a segment of the population. I mean, if we do that, we're going to achieve herd immunity anyway. And then the vaccine passport debate just falls away. If enough people are vaccinated, then it falls away. But let's say we don't achieve herd immunity and we've tried everything we can, and we're not getting an up uptake of people, and we now want to try a system where we're excluding people. I think that still has some challenges because we have to decide what are we excluding them from. Uh, are we excluding them from things that will give them basic necessaries of life? Even in the Quebec scheme, they've designed it because our law is very different from you know, what you might find in, in a place like France. If you exclude persons here from, say, access to food because they're not vaccinated, you're going to have to deal with that. There's going to be lawsuits. There's going to be. There's going to have to be some courts telling us whether that's constitutional or not. So the questions are not easy, and people just default to this easy thinking that you know it's binary, and they think it's a moonshot. If you if you introduce uh, vaccine passports, vaccine uptake is going to go up. It's going to protect you, Ryan, uh, from from people who are unvaccinated. I don't think that's necessarily the case. I I rather we actually spend our energy focusing on how to get more people vaccinated. I don't think we've done enough yet. 
it's kind of a spin on the whole idea around education over enforcement, right? I mean, not exactly, but it's kind of what you're arguing. Um, I mean, in, in many ways, no, yes and no. I, it, it, it does sound similar, but it's not what I'm arguing. What I'm saying is that we seem to think that the way out of this pandemic is to rely on one thing that will resolve the issues we're having with vaccination. I just don't think that that's the case. I think before you can go to a system that is gonna create what is essentially a two-tier society between those who have become vaccinated and those who have not, you need to think carefully about whether you've exhausted every means with which to actually get people vaccinated. Let me ask you about we that. haven't done so. Okay, yeah, because right. I, I wanna ask you about that because you touched on the lotto vax. Um, obviously, play on word on Lotto Max for anybody that's not in Western Canada. So the, the province of Alberta rolled out this strategy several weeks ago. Uh, you know, a million dollar prize. Everybody that got vaccinated, their name would be in a draw. Someone's going to win a million bucks. And then it turned into, you know, free flights on WestJet and, and free tickets to the Calgary Stampede and that type of a thing. Uh, <laughs> well, let me just ask, generally speaking, uh, your thoughts on the Lotto Vax. I actually, to be honest, I thought the million dollar lottery, I was like, hey, if it, if it gets, if it means 5% more or 10% more of the population gets vaccinated, a million bucks is nothing. So I actually didn't mind it. But how would you characterize the initiative? So, you know, I, I think, again, it's, if it fits with this discussion about vaccine passports. Is this idea that we can do one thing that will give us the response that we're looking for. Uh, the reason why I didn't like it is that I, I, I felt uh, you know, I mean, I think the money is in, in people's minds, money is small. So why are we talking about this? But it sends the wrong message, I think is, is the wrong way to sort of incentivize the population to get vaccinated. Because again, it has that basic deficiency that I talked about, which is that the government does not understand why people are not getting vaccinated. And the government is not doing anything to target the reasons why people are not getting vaccinated. As a matter of fact, I read in the Calgary Herald that uh, the government did uh, get together a bunch of experts who told them why people are not getting vaccinated. So for example, we know that in places like South Alberta, you have this, these communities, the vaccination rates in South Alberta tend to be low, lower than most other places in Alberta, uh, generally speaking. Uh, and we know that there are communities in South Alberta that don't get vaccinated for religious reasons. Uh, and those communities, uh, experts have suggested that they can be better targeted by having religious leaders and faith leaders talk to them about the need for vaccination, right? Uh, so that's one strategy perhaps pursuing those kind of communities. Uh, but do you think that's going to happen, Doc? I don't think that's happening. I don't think I don't think you're going to get religious leaders in those communities telling people they should get vaccinated. No way. They were the ones that were well, telling people that they should. Am I misunderstanding what you're saying? I mean, they're, they're the ones that have been gathering in basements, not wearing masks the whole time. Well, that's actually not true. Uh, I mean, the, the evidence that I've seen suggests that it's not as if all of them say we're not going to do this. I mean, some of them say we're not. Some say we will under these conditions. Others say we definitely will tell them this. It is wrong to assume that, you know, they they all have this opposition to vaccines, mm. right? Um, but nobody has actually tried to engage them and to try and work with them. Now, if you can't use a strategy that is likely to work with them, what are the chances that one, which is just going to force them into dissent and, you know, is going to work. I mean, if that doesn't work, what are the chances that a vaccine passport is going to work? If you think about the, the fights we had about the mask mandate, for example, I remember that fight? <laughs> the little piece of cloth we have to wear over our faces? <laughs> 
you know, I mean, that makes very makes good sense. It's very compelling. Wear a mask, protect your neighbor. And we had fights about that. Mm -hmm. There were lawsuits over that. And now you want to actually talk about excluding people from places. Uh, and I, and I, I think before we get there, I'm not saying we shouldn't. I'm just saying before we get there. And even if this were to go to court, the court will want to actually understand what I'm just, I just told, I'm just telling you now, which is before you got to this measure, which is excluding people from access to things, did you try something else? What else did you try? You don't just go to the nuclear option. What have you tried before getting to this point? And I think that's important because I think, I don't think we should be talking about something where we don't understand who is not getting vaccinated. It seems compelling to me. You know, I live in my house here, you know, I have shelter, uh, I have food, I have a car. If somebody says go to the expo to get vaccinated, I'll jump in my car, I'll drive to expo, I'll get double vaxxed, that's fine. Uh, you know, so it seems easy for me to say, well, people who are not getting vaccinated are doing something bad, right? I also happen to have the benefit of the kind of education that allows me to be able to assess information, identify what's misinformation, and make judgments that allow me to get vaccinated. I don't think I should necessarily demonize my neighbor who doesn't have access to those things. What I should try and do is try and reach them in some other way before I go to an option that is that coercive. And I say this as somebody who actually supports mandatory vaccination. I just don't think we have exhausted the alternatives that we have or even tried them. So to go to this option to me seems um, a bit too much. It was pretty interesting uh, to see just the other night, Fox News, Sean Hannity uh, say, quote, just like we've been saying, please take COVID seriously. Enough people have died. We don't need any more deaths. Research like crazy. Talk to your doctor. It absolutely makes sense for many Americans to get vaccinated. Um, pretty interesting to see a guy like Sean Hannity say, just like we've been saying, please take COVID <laughs> seriously. I mean, he's been calling the pandemic a hoax for months. Uh, Tucker Carlson, who he shares the airwaves with, has, has been, uh, I, I mean, basically taking steaming piles onto vaccines time and time again. What, what do you make of that? I mean, a lot of people, I saw someone on Twitter said, uh-oh, somebody got in trouble. What, what, what do you think the significance is of that statement? I didn't think you were going to hit me with Sean Hannity uh, this morning, but let's go for it. Uh, you know, look, I, I think anyone who comes over from the dark side into the light and helps spread the message, um, we have to welcome that, right? What's interesting about, about that uh, clip is that Sean Hannity, just before he said that, actually had uh, expressed anti-vax uh, opinions, and I think had someone on the show as well uh, who um, was expressing anti-vax uh, opinions. But, but for whatever, for what it's worth, I think the fact that someone like that who has a ton of um, people who listen to him- Huge influence. Followers, huge. huge influence. Uh, I think if you say something like that, I, I think that might get one or two people to, you know, sort of uh, reverse course. And that's a good thing, ultimately. In every little bit helps. Uh, I, I don't want to, you know, um, dismiss messages like that because they might help. The one thing we do know, though, is that with people who are falling to the category where they have opposition to vaccines, uh, they do have entrenched beliefs. And when you say things like that, they entrenches their beliefs. Uh, they, you know, so they prefer to either instead attack Hannity or say, look, he's been bought by the, you know, the other side. He's not telling the truth uh, and he's not likely to lead to a conversion. Uh, 
changing people's views on vaccines and getting them vaccinated is a very complex endeavor. Sure. Uh, and it's Ubaka, let me, study. Yeah, let, let, I, I want to clarify, I'm not mocking Sean Hannity, uh, right. nor, nor am I saying that it's, as a matter of fact, I think it's fantastic what he said. What I'm more intrigued by is why he said it, because it, it's, it's, an, <laughs> it's an abrupt turn, uh, quite frankly, with regards to what his perspective has been. And I just wonder right. if maybe... Uh, you know, the bosses at Fox were, were saying, hey, listen, this is the position that we're going to take, or at least these are the parameters within which we'll operate. If somebody says to me, I only got the vaccine because I need to be able to go to my place in Maui, I'll say, sure, great, fine. I don't care why you get it. I hope you get it. Right. I think there's been some speculation that um, uh, the bosses and the lawyers uh, got to him and there, there's fear of lawsuits if people get harmed. Uh, because Fox is promoting the message. You know, that speculation I, I saw on the internet, I don't know if it's true or not. Uh, but but I do think that, um, I, I'm not sure how much effect that is going to have on the kind of people who listen to Hannity. Um, I think people who listen to Hannity will be more inclined to say, there's a conspiracy going on here with Hannity. This, these are not his real views. Uh, and so we're going to dismiss them. Um, but if he manages to get one or two people vaccinated, I'm all for it. Uh, I think ultimately, ultimately, what matters in this debate that we're having is that the government actually takes the lead in trying to understand why the people who are not getting vaccinated for COVID are not getting vaccinated for COVID. This is not about what has happened before, which is something else I'm seeing on Twitter. People are talking about, oh, you know, this is what happened before with yellow fever or with smallpox. No, we're dealing with a disease that a lot of people uh, are, are experiencing in the internet era, where there's information flowing back and forth, all kinds of misinformation, all kinds of things. You, you know this, Ryan. And, and it's a very different context. And in this context, people have very strong opinions, one way or the other, as to why they want to do things or not do things. And there are people who, in this very uh, helpless situation that we're facing with COVID, struggle to make ends meet to try and manage their life as it is. Life was difficult before for them. COVID has made it worse. We need to have a better understanding of what drives these people one way or the other and address those things. Our government has not done that. Our government has not done enough of that. And until we do that, the idea that we're gonna move the needle by creating this two-tier society where people like you and I, who have done what we think is the right thing, have access to things and people who have not don't, uh, that, to me, doesn't sit comfortably. That's all I'm saying. I've got an interesting comment here from Chelsea who says requiring vaccination for access also relates to the issue of my body, my choice. And government forcing control over what people do to their bodies is a big leap in oversight. Uh, let me reference a tweet that you you put out. This was, uh, I mean, uh, first of all, people have to follow you on Twitter because I just... You say what you think, and I love it. Uh, <laughs> I said, like, my Twitter account is boring compared to yours, but at Ubaka Ogbogu on July 12th, you tweeted, vaccine passports are not a good thing, and the privacy concerns do merit consideration. So when a, an associate professor in the faculty of law and a research fellow in health, law, and science policy starts saying, hey, hang on a second, uh, and I bet you, Ubaka, you know this. I bet you some people were a little surprised by the angle you took, right? They were probably <laughs> expecting you to argue the opposite. They're going to go, okay, hang on. He thinks that there could be privacy concerns here. Can we, can we touch on that specifically? Yes, of course. 
So, so the privacy concerns, I, in my tweet said they merit consideration. I don't think there are an impediment to having vaccine passports. Let me be very clear. Uh, the privacy issues around vaccine passports are not unique. Uh, they're the same kind of privacy issues you will have uh, if, for example, you, you know, to attend uh, an event, um, you were asked to provide your ID um, to enter a, a nightclub, uh, the same kind of privacy considerations you will have uh, in any situation where you have to exchange health information for services. There's nothing unique about this. And it is, it is likely the case that if the government were to design uh, a vaccine passport, they would design it in such a way as to protect your privacy information as much as possible. What I don't like people saying is that, you know, uh, the, the we shouldn't talk about it. It does merit consideration. I can think of situations where if it's poorly designed, it will become a problem. Uh, I can think of situations where if it's designed to release your personal information, where uh, that might be used uh, by uh, persons who receive that information for purposes that it did not intend for it to be used for. I can see, you know, there's a collection behind the scenes to understand the kind of people who go to maybe, you know, the Oilers game and their vaccination status. There's ways it could be used. Uh, so it needs to be looked at. And here's the interesting thing. It has been looked at. Uh, the, the Privacy Commission of Canada convened uh, a group of privacy experts and privacy regulators to look at it last year. And they came up with recommendations on how to manage the privacy considerations. So it seems a bit thin for people to say, oh, let's, there's no, there are privacy issues to be looked at, but they are not different. They are not unique. And we should not exceptionalize COVID passport, uh, vaccine passports as presenting a different kind of uh, privacy situation. It doesn't, but it does merit consideration. Okay, so let me ask you this, because I, I know that something was driving you nuts over the last couple of days. And, and I'll be honest, my friend, I was not exactly sure why, uh, because when when we went to travel, I think, uh, for example, about 20 years ago, uh, friends and I went down to South America for about six months. And there were certain countries that required certain shots. They required certain vaccinations literally to get a visa into that country. There was no way you were entering without it. How is this any different? I mean, people were saying, well, this has been going on forever. And you were going, that is absolutely inaccurate. It was, it was, it was yeah. your blood pressure was rising. I could tell. It, it was Ryan because, you know, when people conflate these things, it doesn't lead us to have good debates about what we're talking about. But how is it different? It is different because uh, if I decide I want to travel to say, you know, somewhere in the continent of Africa and they say, look, there's a disease that's endemic uh, there, you need to have proof that you've been vaccinated for that disease because A, we don't want you to get sick and we don't, a, B, we don't want you to contribute to the spread of the disease within the country and we don't want you to also take it out of the country and create a global catastrophe, right? So we need you to show proof that you've been vaccinated for that. Uh, I think that makes perfect sense to me. Uh, it, it is something that I need to do where I can go to a clinic, a travel clinic, get it, and then have access to that country. Canada has been doing that forever. Canada will require you to get uh, you know, proof of certain vaccines to be able to enter Canada, uh, where those vaccines are available. Uh, but that's not what we're talking about here. It, it is one thing to say, I am going to Kenya. It's another to say, I'm going to my local coffee shop, right? Or I'm going to the grocery store to get food. And somebody says, you can't enter because uh, you don't have, uh, you've not been vaccinated, right? 
when I, I decide I'm going to travel to somewhere, the considerations are much different than when I decide to go to my grocery store. Okay, so hang on. So you're saying it's it's different for somebody that lives in Winnipeg who wants to go down to the Forks and go to their favorite restaurant on the river, and and the and the restaurant is saying you need a vaccine passport to enter, and they say there's no way, and then you would side with the person saying there's no way. However, if the government of Canada says we're going to require proof of vaccination at all of our international airports, at all of our border crossings to enter Canada, we will not apologize for it, you would support that? Not necessarily. I don't, I don't give support to things I haven't seen. It depends on how they design it, because historically, the government of Canada used that kind of uh, uh, um, scheme to actually deny immigration to certain populations. So they will see if they see Asians and black people, they're like, no, we're not granting you entry. <laughs> you know, um, th- th- that could also go wrong. You know? So they used to exclude certain populations from Canada, um, uh, especially in places where it's not easy to get those vaccines. So, you know, Sam, I grew up in Nigeria. I don't have access to those vaccines and you try to deny me entry or you say nobody from Nigeria can come in. I will have issues with that. So, uh, but what I'm saying is when countries do that, they're doing something different from the issue of people's daily lives and access to services around them uh, and restricting access to that, especially in a situation. For you, there has to be a difference between domestic and international. It has to be two different conversations. Is that what you're saying? So I understand that. That's what I'm saying. There's two different conversations. It's not, it's not the same conversation. I don't decide to go to, uh, you know, Japan every day. I don't decide to go to Kenya every day. (laughs) And when I decided I'm going to Kenya, I know I have to go get a passport, an actual passport. You know, I couldn't just walk to the airport and be like, admit me into into Kenya. I go to I go to get my Canadian international passport. I make sure that I have, you know, my travel medicines. I I make sure I have, you know, these are different set of considerations. When I wake up in the morning to go get coffee, I, I, I just go get coffee. And so when you're saying I can't do that, I'm not saying you you can't say that, but when you're saying I can't you can't do that, you, you have to comply with the laws within that country in restricting my access to that. But you also, when you're taking that measure, which is quite restrictive, you have to have good reasons for it. And I just don't think those good reasons have been advanced. Yet. Let, me, let me ask you this in closing, Doc, and, and we so appreciate your time. I know you've you fit us in this morning into your schedule. Do you, If you were walking into, let's say, your favorite restaurant, and for the first time ever, this is like your first time going back in, you're going to be dining in there. You can't wait to hear the clinking of glasses and the music and the hubbub and everything that people have been missing for a year and a half. But you're walking in and you see a sign up that says, uh, you know, you know, basically the unvaccinated are not welcome. Obviously, they would phrase it differently. They would say kindly provide proof of vaccination <laughs> for access to our restaurant. And thank you for your patronage. It would be worded in a way like that. Would that make you uncomfortable? Uh, would you take issue with it? Would you continue to enter the restaurant if they unapologetically insisted that their customers be vaccinated? No, I, I, it wouldn't make me uncomfortable uh, so much as in, you know, if there are good reasons for it. If if we are at the point where there are good reasons for it, uh, I, I wouldn't be uncomfortable. What I'm advancing is ideas for building policy that is ethical, non-discriminatory, equitable, and good that is empathetic and and that goes to the root of the problem and tries to solve it. I I am not advocating for a personal, for for a degree of personal comfort that allows me to have my my posh coffee when I go, you know, pay for it. That's not what I'm advocating for. Uh, Of course, I want to be in a place that's safe. Uh, But, you know, when I was, when the mask mandate was lifted, I had those worries as well about going to, uh, you know, a coffee shop with people who are masked. Uh, So I, I wear my mask there. But I don't go up to them and start, you know, like harassing them. I, I just kind of understand that uh, 
what we have is a failure of policy. What we have is a government that has failed to actually have a policy that we all can follow. Uh, I'm not going to go walk over to my the person who's at a, at a coffee shop and go, why are you not wearing a mask and punch them in the face? Or you know, go harass the restaurant and say, why do you have this policy or that policy? We need the government to lead. That's what we have them for. And if they're not leading properly, uh, then what are we to do? Uh, so I will go to my coffee shop. If I see that sign, you know, I'll, I'll have some disquiet about it, but I'm not going to get, you know, overly uh, excited about it. But I will go back and tweet that the government should have a policy that makes sense, that is equitable, that allows me to enjoy my coffee, while also allowing the person who cannot get vaccinated, be vaccinated so they can come and join me to get my coffee. Dr. Rubako Ogbogu wears his heart on his sleeve. You must follow him on Twitter. A good friend of the show, an associate professor of faculty of law, Kate's research fellow in health law science policy at the University of Alberta, a fellow at the Pierre Elliott Trudeau Foundation. Thanks so much for your time today. We really appreciate it. Thank you, Ryan. Always a pleasure. You got it. Real Talkers, I have no doubt that this is making you think right now, and I'd love to hear from you. Talk at ryanjesperson.com is where you can send your thoughts as you process that interview. Let me know what you think. I'm not sure. Let me say two things. Uh, Number one, he's smarter than me. And number two, I'm not sure I agree with everything that he says. But that's totally cool. I'm going to go back, watch it again, think about it. I'm not sure I see a difference between a lot of countries. And I said this to his face. I'm I'm not sure I see a lot of difference between a lot of countries. And and I think he acknowledged that, too. So the country's got an issue with a disease that could rapidly spread there. They've worked hard to combat it. They don't want people coming in unprotected. They don't want it to spread. I mean, it kind of sounds like COVID to me. In a way, it'll be curious to see how the Canadian government and others move on this. Of course, this show will continue to cover the the Canada-U.S. border reopening in a sense coming up. I think it's August 9th for one-way traffic. And of course, we'll keep an eye on the American implications for that as well. But as you listen to us from around the world, we have audience members that are tuning in outside North America. I'd be curious to hear your thoughts on this as well. It's Wednesday. And every single Wednesday, we have a chance to head out to the mountains It's one of our favorite features of the week in partnership with Tourism Jasper. We present My Jasper Memories. And every week, I mean, this is an absolutely beautiful part of this feature. You continue to share with us your Jasper Memories. And this week is going to be no different because we're talking about families. And we're talking about family travel to Jasper National Park out to the mountains. You know, for us, and we've had such special memories, I wanted to share a couple of personal photos with you. If you're listening to this on the podcast, you can always find us. We tweet this out. You can find it on YouTube. Look at this. This is Wyatt's first skate. I am never going to forget this for as long as I live. This is the first time the little man put on skates, and this was a celebration. This is my family. This is what it looks like when you have no idea that a global pandemic is about to hit. This was January of 2020 and here we are as a family we always bring board games when we head out to jasper you know an active kid's a happy kid and jasper of course has no shortage of kid-friendly activities you have a chance to create memories that will last a lifetime and and rejoice in fuss-free bedtimes that full days outdoor can bring i know that a lot of you have plans to get out to jasper this summer and probably a lot of you already excited to get out there this fall but You know, here's a few options for families that may be looking for activities to get out there. Things like floating tours. You know that toddlers can go out on some of these gentle river trips. They can find custom ones for you. Hit the trails, picnics by the lake, a planetarium show. We've done it. It's amazing. Kid-friendly horseback riding. What about the Sky Tram for alpine views? And, of course, keep an eye out. See if you can find Jasper the Bear around town. Now, just to be clear, that's a mascot. If you do find a real bear around town, get back in your vehicle. Do not attempt to approach the bear. 
Melanie Gabri is the owner of My Jasper Nanny, and, and we consulted with her for a few tips on traveling with kids out to the mountains. And, and Melody said, number one, obviously bring snacks. Probably didn't have to tell you parents that. You can put a busy bag together, but they're not allowed to open it till you start the trip. Encourage older kids to keep a travel diary. Maybe some fun game of I Spy or something like that. You can store spare clothes in a plastic Ziploc bag and make sure you plan your drive or your flight or even your boat trip, maybe out to Spirit Island, around the kids' nap times. Now, we'd love to hear your best family Jasper stories. You can learn more about our partnership with Tourism Jasper by checking out jasper.travel slash realtalk. I want to show you this website really quickly because check this out. They've done an amazing job of curating our past episodes. This is at jasper.travel slash realtalk. You can see our features on wildlife, the photo contest snaps from the past, camping. What about our feature on Matricia Bowers fireside chat, the indigenous history, the rich history of this area, patios, rafting, and so much more. If you want to send us photos, we'd love to see them on Instagram, on Twitter. Make sure you use the hashtags MyJasper and RealTalkRJ. Every week, every Wednesday, My Jasper Memories presented by our friends at Tourism Jasper. These next two names are going to be familiar ones. I have no doubt if you're a regular listener or a viewer of this program, Adam O'Brien is the founding CEO of Bitcoin. Well, our presenting sponsor and Jake Kubiski, the founding CEO of Kubi Renewable Energy. Of course, they, of course, are presenting positive reflections each and every Monday. And, it, and it's a real pleasure to get these fellows back together. We, we wanted to pick their brains on talk about sustainability and green energy. But first, to the two of you, allow me to wish you a very good morning and welcome back to the show. It's good to have you here. Hey, good morning. Thanks for having me. Yeah. Uh, I know that the two of you, you guys are obviously big in tech and you guys are, Adam, I think the last time I called you a futurist, you laughed, but you're a guy and I know both of you are guys that are always looking ahead and I just have to pick your brains. It has nothing to do really with either of your business models or either of your entrepreneurial ventures, but Jeff Bezos off into space yesterday, this, this billionaire's race to space, Adam, it's like Elon Musk and, uh, and, uh, and, uh, Amazon, Jeff Bezos, and, and of course, Richard Branson, Virgin Galactic, all, all these three, it seems want to want to own space and want to be the first ones to really make it accessible to people. How significant do you think yesterday was? Yeah, I think um, pretty significant. I think that when you have three people, three juggernauts, like those three, you know, tech billionaires, um, all competing and racing for their own purposes, society profits and society benefits. I think that if society can get the space, have the option to go to space, that is a net benefit for society. And uh, I think that that's, pretty awesome do you mean do you mean like from an entertainment standpoint a benefit or do you mean even things like i mean i've seen some people talking about for example harvesting resources from space or 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 maybe one day habiting mars or, or somewhere else i mean how big do you think and with regards to access to space yeah like I, to be honest i'm like pretty immersed in uh in in digital currency and finance and i don't have enough time to like actually look in and think about what space means for society but i think like just as a general concept, if we as humans have more places to live, more access to different kinds of resources, um, just the optionality is is better than not having the optionality. I'm like, you know, if you're looking at like a hundred thousand foot view, I think that's like a net positive. Yeah, Jake, what did you make it yesterday? Were you were you watching the whole thing go down? Were you paying attention to it? I didn't watch it live, but I also do. I agree with Adam that I think the benefits of uh, the technology that they're creating is going to, you know, fall out and benefit society as a whole um them actually racing to space on uh you know within a week of each other that's you know that's obviously uh, like you said earlier in the show a 
big dick contest. But uh, now that that's settled, <laughs> then then they can uh, sort out the the tech that's coming with uh, all these crazy rockets that, that that these rich guys are building. Yeah, I, I look at it as, and I and I can see a lot of people don't like it just because it's it's somewhat flamboyant and, and people would say, well, it's a waste of hundreds of millions of dollars. And at the same time you look back and you say, well, what if, um, and I don't know if I really want to draw the direct parallel, but I think it fits. I mean, what if the Wright brothers, you know, what if everybody had said to the Wright brothers, well, they're just showing off and horses are perfectly fine. And Henry Ford's working on the model T and, and I can already drive all the way to Eckville. And I'm not sure why I need to get up in a plane and, and fly to Saskatoon. It's just showing off. And, and I kind of wonder if this is the equivalent a hundred years later. Yeah, I think that, I mean, absolutely, this is the equivalent. And I think that, you know, you look throughout history and over time, I don't know that any innovation as seen as like a good investment um, until you look back and think like, oh, thank goodness we have that. <laughs> and I think, you know, you look at things like automobiles and things like you said, like flying planes. A um, hundred years ago, flying a plane was like, no way. There's no way I'm getting up in the sky at tens of thousands of feet and, and, you know, in, in a, in a metal can. Uh, but, but here we are and that's how we travel. Well, not recently, but that's how you like, that's, that's my preferred way to travel. If I have to go to Florida, I would much rather do it in a metal can 35,000 feet in the air than on four wheels <laughs> for 70 hours. <laughs> yeah, no kidding. Well, listen, I wanted to get the two of you on here together. We want to talk about sustainability. We want to talk about crypto. Adam, every morning when we lead off out of the gates, I always say to real talkers, if you have questions about crypto, especially challenging ones, um, I should pe- pull back the curtain a little bit and let everybody know that uh, before Adam comes on the show, every single time he sends me a text that says, give me the hardest questions. He says, I want the hardest questions. I want to answer those <laughs> ones. And you know, a big question around crypto is the sustainability angle. Uh, Jake, you and I, of course, you're in the solar business had a chance to chat a little while ago and you were telling me how you and adam first crossed paths and and then you were talking about the future of 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 solar and sustainable energy and how you think that could fit into crypto why don't we get an understanding first of all i i hope it's not too personal but but how the two of you met is it okay can we talk about that how your paths first crossed jake why don't you tell the story yeah for sure uh adam was renovating his personal residence and i was looking for some tesla products and our name came, my name came across through a mutual contact of ours and uh, one thing led to another and uh, uh, we were installing some Tesla power walls in his house and uh, that's also what got me introduced to uh, cryptocurrency, uh, Bitcoin specifically. Uh, we did a transaction for in Bitcoin for for a product and uh, and then yeah it's been I'm hooked now. <laughs> and, and here you both are uh, on the sponsors tab prominently uh, at ryanjesperson.com, which is amazing. Adam, uh, the reason why I find that particularly interesting is because I know that sustainability does matter to you. And I know you're an innovation guy, but I also know you're a guy that does care deeply about the environment. And we've talked about that a lot. And I think that that I won't speak for you, but it factors into your choice, even of the car that you drive and how you're powering that car and how you're charging that car. I've heard a lot of people say, I heard a guy say just the other day that he doesn't believe that the growth of EVs, of electric vehicles in Alberta, is always 100% a good story. He says because there's still so much coal-fired power. Uh, unlike BC, he was using the example, said there's much more hydro power there. He said it's more sustainable in BC. But I know it's on your radar. So a guy in the business of crypto, the sustainability conversation and the energy use conversation, I know resonates with you. Can you take us into it and your perspective on it? Yeah, definitely. I think that 
um, like I've kind of said in the past, you know, the net benefit to um, private markets being able to benefit from innovation is that we have, you know, organizations like Kubi Energy um, who are in the renewables game, uh, innovating in the renewables game, and are able to find ways to power and fund that innovation through crypto mining. Uh, the largest cost to mining a Bitcoin is the power, is the energy involved in doing that. And so if you can find better, cheaper, and faster ways to uh, get that power, that's a net positive for uh, for the industry, but also for the, the business and, and the owner of those miners powering it with renewables. I think further to that, um, you know, the concept of, of, of clean energy is, uh, is obviously a hot topic. And it's one thing that, you know, we talked about the net positives of society. If we have two places to live, um, it's absolutely no secret that we need uh, optionality when it comes to the power and and how that power is is uh, is working in our um, decisions that we make to to mine Bitcoin and to to power you know houses and cars and um, all the rest of it. I think the I do find it funny that EVs are praised for using energy. Um, the same power plug that powers my car also powers my Bitcoin miner. Um, so I think there is a bit of a double standard between the between the uh, uh, the, the systems and the and the industries. But I'm definitely excited for this to kind of play out, and you know, with more companies like Kubi Energy coming into the space and and innovating on that renewable te- technology, I think that's that's a win. Yeah, Jake, let's let's talk about this. Can I call it an invention of yours? It's pretty. It's it starts sure. it starts with a C can, right? Uh, can you That's tell us, for, for people that are watching this, uh, they'll be able to see this photo, but essentially it's it's a C-can absolutely covered in solar panels. What's this all about? Yeah, so we were, uh, you know, installing power walls for people in off-grid situations, and uh, we were finding that uh, too many variables when we were getting to site, um, just in regards to retrofitting systems into existing homes and, and businesses and uh, off-grid settings for forestry and, and mining applications. And then we, we decided that uh, we need to kind of control the variables and, uh, you know, lower the cost ultimately for the customer. So essentially now we can uh, install everything we need within the container and then uh, deploy that on site. And then wherever that's going, you simply just plug into uh, to a disconnect on the side of the building and you have uh, 240 volt power at, uh, at, your, at without any really on-site disruption of existing infrastructure you were telling me that you think that this could fit nicely or factor nicely into conversation around sustainability and crypto mining how would you see that playing out yeah so it's there uh, the nice thing about these containers is they're very modular so based off how much demand you need we can simply add clip in more containers together to build capacity so really yeah you can you can fill these with crypto miners and deploy them anywhere and uh and then have a, an off-grid crypto mining setup Adam, is that the type of thing that you can see catching on? I, I mean, especially under more scrutiny, especially as more and more people are becoming aware of crypto and talking about it and starting to evaluate the environmental impact like they do of any other industry. Is this the type of direction you can see it going on mass, bigger picture? Absolutely. I think, too, uh, it allows more people to get involved in mining Bitcoin, which is amazing. I think that there's there's, there's basically three ways to kind of get into the, the Bitcoin space. You, you buy it, you earn it, or you mine it. 
And right now, uh, mining it is is very difficult because of, you know, partially because of the environmental impact, partially because of the barrier to entry, um, and partially because of the education gap. And I think that uh, when two of those three things are are solved in the, the education gap and the environmental impact, uh, that's a win. And more people mining Bitcoin makes the Bitcoin network more secure, uh, which is obviously a positive for the entire Bitcoin ecosystem. And I think that things like the QB, the Kubi cube is, uh, is, is definitely what, what the Bitcoin industry and things like it is, th- is what the Bitcoin industry needs. Hmm. Um, I, I think it's, it's amazing to be able to, you know, the sun is shining everywhere. And if we can capture that energy where it is not already being captured to power the, to power sound money, to power the financial network with sound monetary principles like Bitcoin, um, that is just absolutely incredible. I think about like, you know, the back 40, you have 800 acres of just, you know, pure sun in rural Alberta. And you think about 800 acres of, you know, sun mining Bitcoin. That is, <laughs> that is good in my books. <laughs> yeah, no kidding. And then Jake, I mean, I would imagine like, I mean, you, you know, the imagination or lack of imagination might be the only barrier to, to understanding how this could probably be implemented on mass. So, I mean, we can talk to Adam about uh, crypto uh, and, and, and the connotation there, the potential uh, usage there. But I would imagine you probably have a thousand ideas on how these types of things could be deployed. Yeah, we get tons of inquiries from all different sorts of industries. Um, it's it's really wherever you need a plug-in for uh, some pretty big, you know, 40 amps at 240 volts uh, for one con- one cube. It's uh, you know the the like yeah. The, Jake, the can you give it, hang on for a, for a guy like me yeah. that has no idea what those numbers mean or what would require that much power <laughs> or what a draw that would be? What would, like what would be an example uh, of something you could power reliably off grid with tech like that? Uh, a small house you could power no problem with that you can charge your electric vehicle with it um you know like a range stove plug at your house is a 40 amp 240 volt um a large air conditioner is a 240 volt uh, 40 amp um you know a welding plug for uh you know for breaking it down to devices um but yeah typically people plug it in and then use it uh to distribute to a bunch of different different items. You were telling me that, that there are some incentives right now. I thought actually that the audience would be, especially our rural audience, would be interested to know about this, about incentives for agricultural producers um, using or implementing measures of sustainability like solar. Where are you seeing those types of applications? Uh, in regards to the cube or just in regards to solar in general? Well, I mean, the cube certainly is a standalone, uh, but I would imagine even just solar panels. I mean, it, it could be something uh, rather small and modest or, or something probably pretty massive, right? Yeah, we're seeing big uptake in uh, in agricultural and commercial installations. Uh, a lot of uh, a lot of businesses are hopping on board. A lot of, lot of residential people. I think that, you know, the pandemic has really driven people to work from home. Uh, you know, upgrade their homes, invest in, uh, you know, their, their hard assets like their house, um, adding, you know, and lower their lower their carbon footprint at the end of the day as well. Like we just got a, a message from an existing customer yesterday where he sent us a picture of his electricity bill and it was negative to almost $400. So like uh, that's over and above what he didn't have to pay. He's been running his air conditioner for the last month pretty, pretty hard. So he's, he's beyond thrilled that he was able to you know, lower his carbon footprint as well as lower his, uh, you know, keep money in his pocket. Yeah. Adam, have you gone, have you done a, an installation residential for yourself? It's funny. I, so I have those Tesla power walls. Um, 
but I missed the government uh, subsidies. There was, ah. there's some significant government subsidies that were uh, to the tune. I, I think Jake, was it, was it, it was like tens of thousands of dollars. It would have been for the, for the, the full application. Um, and uh, I, I assume the government is going to reintroduce those at some point. And um, like the ROI, the payback, I figured uh, I would, I would wait for those subsidies to come in, but um, I have used solar. Like I've, I've installed solar um, in much smaller scales on uh, trailers. Um, I throughout the the pandemic built a, uh, a gym at my place out of like a sea can um, and powered it with, with solar. And um, I'm entertaining. I have this, uh, this, rural property um with some farmland that is is currently being farmed and it's rented out to a to a farmer's farm in canola it's beautiful um but i look at like what you know those acres are making financially and i think how much more could that make if it was stacked up with solar um solar panels mining bitcoin mining mining hard money um and it's like it's pretty shocking the difference in yeah. in the ROI. <laughs> no kidding. Uh, especially considering I think it's going to be a tough year for canola right now, but I digress. I don't think any of the three of us are experts uh, and nor should we start talking about what canola is going to look like come harvest time. But, but I mean, I just even, you know, I mean, just as at a, at a general level, I, I think how, I mean, amazing when we talk about electric vehicles and, and oftentimes, obviously, people talk about the emissions or the lack of emissions and how that's so environmentally friendly, but you're still charging them. And I imagine if you get to a point where people are charging their electric vehicles with solar panels that are installed, uh, it's just it, it almost answers two objections. Uh, it, it, it decreases reliance on the grid. I mean, just the, the payoff. And Jake, I don't know what you would describe as maybe the timeline of when could people could expect to see a reality like that. But, but this isn't something that people's grandchildren are going to see. I mean, how far away do you think that that reality is where maybe two out of five houses on the street have solar panels directly charging their electric vehicles that are in the garage? Like, just just to talk on that topic, I, uh, you know, I just, I recently had a baby girl that we had about a month ago and uh, my grandparents came by when they were able to and met her and they said, here's a couple hundred bucks, start a bank account for her. And I said, that's probably not going to happen. I'm, I went down to Bitcoin well and <laughs> fired up a crypto account for her. And I said, you know, in the future... I don't think bank accounts are going to be around as in, in the respects that they are today. And I also don't think she'll probably ever drive a, a gas powered, a gas powered vehicle. So, you know, she's one month old. And by the time she's 18, I, I, I truly don't think that uh, automakers will be making gas power anymore. Huh. And so to answer your question, I think also EVs are part of the solution in regards to the infrastructure problem we, we currently already have um, on the hottest day of the year, a couple months or a couple weeks back, uh, Alberta experienced the highest draw of electricity they've ever experienced. Um, big problem. Um, our infrastructure can't handle it. And now we're injecting a bunch of, you know, heavy devices into the network in regards to air conditioners, electric vehicle charging, uh, et cetera, et cetera. We're, we're, we're going electric on it on pretty much all fronts. So um, EVs, they are essentially a big battery bank that can be driven around and charged from commercial networks and then brought home, plugged into your house. And then your house can run off that battery, which eliminates that house from the utility grid, which actually plugs a hole, if you will, uh, in, in the boat that's leaking, right? So yeah. it's uh, it's uh, it's definitely here. Um, it's just a matter of uh, our code and our, our electrical code catching up to the technology that's being presented. Yeah. yeah Jake, what, I'll, I'll cut in there quickly. Like Jake explained that to me when we got my, my, and he said the technology currently exists that I could, 
um, charge my car at my office or whatever, and then discharge my car into my battery pack at home and have that power my entire house, which made me think as an employer, um, wouldn't it be amazing to have that as a, as a perk uh, to the team to be able to, you know, essentially, you know, we're going to pay you, but we're going to pay a nominal electricity bill. Cause it, I think my, my car costs like between seven and $8 to like fill up from, from totally empty. Um, and so if we, if we allowed our, our team members to, you know, to charge their cars at work, they could then go home and discharge their now fully powered, fully charged battery banks, as Jake called them, driving battery banks into their house to power their air conditioners, their microwaves, their, their furnace, whatever. Uh, that'd be an incredible perk. And I think that it, further kind of like the residential grid, as Jake was saying, is, is quite clogged and only will get more clogged. Um, how's, I'm not sure if we've all noticed this, but like housing density is not getting less houses are getting closer and closer together. You often drive in the newer neighborhoods and it's like, Oh, you could pass the, you know, you pass your drink across your window to your neighbor, which is more power being drawn on what the existing infrastructure is. And so I think that would be incredible. And I think that should be a massive, it's a blind spot right now, I think for businesses not installing um, car chargers in, in their buildings for their teams. Well, I think, I, I think that many of us, myself included, are underestimating how quickly tech can change and yeah. are underestimating how quickly, like Jake, you reference, you know, with the types of vehicles that are, I mean, there are auto manufacturers, major ones, General Motors among them, uh, you know, one of the biggest companies in the world uh, talking about, you know, I mean, essentially like 13 years from now, 14 years from now, they expect to have almost a completely electric lineup like that and that's including fleets and pickups and and the whole nine yards and i think it it is upon us um i posted a photo we have a, a classic cadillac that it's got a big motor and it uses a lot of gas and, and and i like to think that i'm funding some social programs through what we pay into the carbon tax although i'm not sure how much makes its way back to alberta but i posted a photo of my little guy a while ago online and uh, with this classic car and one of Alberta's former environment ministers, uh, Shannon Phillips, reached out and said, that's so cool. And just think one day your son will be able to drive that car and it will be battery powered. And I went, I don't know about that. I don't I don't know <laughs> if I can. <laughs> I don't know if I can ever swap out that seven point two liter V8, but maybe, maybe, maybe it'll be time to do it um, before I let you go. I, I want to throw a couple of questions your way, Adam. Uh, we've got some people online uh, wig with in particular asking for your comment on, on what we've seen with regards to the value of Bitcoin um, down. You'll know more about this than me. I actually haven't checked where it's at today, but it's down about 50% um, over the past number of, of months. What's your interpretation of maybe why that might be happening or what's going on? Yeah, I think it, this is Bitcoin doing Bitcoin. I think that Bitcoin has shown us time and time again that it's it's volatile and that um, you know it is not the best place to store value that you need short term, but time and time again, it proves that it is the best place to store value long-term. And we've been saying this, we call Bitcoin a savings account rather than an investment. Um, I think that if you zoom out a little bit, it's down 50% from the all-time high. Uh, it is still up, uh, I wanna say three or 400% over the last three years, um, which is which is very good. I would be quite happy if, if every three years you quadruple your money, you will be doing quite well. Um, and so I think that the price action is kind of doing what, what Bitcoin does. And um, I think we'll continue to see volatility in the price. But actually, I tweeted yesterday, um, you know, worried about being worried about short-term price. Um, I think 
is a distraction compared to what Bitcoin actually is. And Bitcoin mm. is sound money with hard monetary principles um, in a decentralized, safe and secure financial network that uh, that society will benefit from. And so I think that the short term price is not irrelevant, um, but is less relevant than I think we give it credit for. I was listening to a podcast with Jack Maulers as a guest uh, a few days ago, and and he was talking about what's going on in El Salvador with, with Bitcoin, obviously, as an official currency, a legal tender. Um, I don't know if that's a proper phrase to use, but an official currency anyway. And he said, and he was he was making the argument, and obviously he can do it better than me, but he was saying you, you need to, in the conversation around this right now, he said the, the current price of Bitcoin is a distraction. You need to be talking about what this does with regards to accessibility of finance, uh, accessibility to, to the traditional understanding of banking, that, that the majority of the population in a developing country like that would not have access to. They were even talking about the fact that in El Salvador, a quarter of its GDP is remittances, is people using things like Western Union or Money Mart or whatever to, to send money down to loved ones, and, and they break it down, and they show that about 40% of the transferred total, this is, let's say, that you know someone had to leave El Salvador to come to the United States, and they're working their tail off to send money back home. For every $100, they're sending back home about $40, uh, including payments to, to gangs and, and everything else, and, and, and exorbitant fees, about 40% makes its way into these people's pockets, whereas right now with transfers and crypto, especially with the government giving it the green light, people are seeing 100 or virtually 100% of, of the total, and they're seeing it lightning fast. And it was a fascinating uh, way to understand. I mean, there's a lot of people, you know, you're not going to be surprised that some people in our comments are, you know, calling us dude bros and they're you know, joking about crypto because I, I think, quite frankly, a lot of people don't quite understand the implications or what Bitcoin addresses. They only, they maybe pin it on somebody and they have a, a misconception of what it's all about. But I, the El Salvador experiment is absolutely fascinating. Yeah, it's amazing. The remittance market, like you said, like on every on any on any average remittance transaction, there are 14 to 16 middlemen, uh, each one of them making an honest living at the same time. And so, uh, you, you know, with 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 Bitcoin, international remittance get can can slash that in a in a true peer to peer transaction where Bitcoin is the reserve currency or the 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 starting and final uh, point of of entry. There are zero middlemen. There is simply a a, a bunch of ones and zeros in the middle in the blockchain. Um, you know the people saying that we are dude bros in the comments. Um, I I think that's just so funny and, and quite a popular narrative. And my comment to that, and I do want to make a public comment to that, is that um, to lots of people, the CEO of Blockbuster denying uh, Netflix investment was the smartest move he could make because who on earth wants to get their media online? And uh, I think that um, you know who on earth wants to control their money is the same sentiment from the same people calling us dude bros. <laughs> yeah, I think. Well, I think, and I think the conversation. Okay will evolve as as more and more people understand the implications and and i hope that that people uh i hope that people will do due diligence and and, and really try to understand it and i think that the el salvador experiment is going to be an opportunity to see what a national adoption 
uh, yeah. could look like moving forward. Jake, I know the two of you both have to go, but right now we're super excited uh, that Kubi Energy is, is presenting this net zero solar contest. And I've been telling people they can go to kubienergy.ca slash realtalk to learn more. We want to hear their solar stories, why they deserve or why somebody that they know uh, could be an individual, could be an organization, deserves a solar installation, no strings attached, all costs covered. Tee this up for us. Well, I have you sitting here as, as if I'm not going to ask you about it. Uh, tell us a little bit about what, <laughs> what this installation will look like and what it's going to mean for one real talker. Yeah, we're super excited about it. We've been getting lots of good submissions just in regards to uh, who deserves it. Uh, you know, the unsung hero we want you to nominate in regards to who deserves a solar system that will, uh, you know, reduce your energy bill, hopefully to net zero. It all, you know, it depends on your house and how much energy you use, but realistically it's very doable. And uh, yeah, we're looking forward to reviewing all of them over the next couple of days here and then pitching the top three to, uh, to Ryan and his team. And uh and yeah, we'll get letting the audience vote on uh, who they think uh, deserves it the most. Yeah, that's right. It's going to be an audience vote, which I'm really excited about. So what does this mean, though, for the person that wins? I mean, I know that you've been saying essentially it's 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 virtually free, clean energy for 30 years. That's a game changer. Yeah, it's, it, you know, it's warranted for 25 years, so it's expected to last for 30 plus years. Uh, you know, it's taken... Uh, energy sovereignty into your hands and uh and making your home more energy efficient overall and then you know that the byproduct of all that is uh a lowered electricity bill and during the summer months um it's not unrealistic to have a credit um and not have any bill at all so it's uh it's it's, it's uh, we're pretty excited um to uh to roll this out and uh yeah looking forward to it all right thanks uh, fellas it's always great to chat with you i love the insight and thanks for making the time to talk to us that's adam o'brien uh ceo of bitcoin well and jake kubiski ceo of kubi energy adam i didn't ask you hang on uh, a couple people asked me the other day what's going on with going public ah yes we are very very close working with the exchange on some few final regulatory things apparently being the um the first one to go public in our sector of the industry um makes it quite challenging and so we uh there's lots of uh lots of lawyers and and things that we have to work through to make sure that everyone is protected in the process and uh it, it's looking it's looking pretty solid and now that i'm a you know soon to be public company ceo i have to be very mysterious and and can't give real dates because okay. it's, it's, it's forward looking <laughs> okay and i and, and i didn't tell you i was gonna ask you that so maybe your team would have said hey don't ask adam about going public but maybe i should check my email before i ask you i don't know anyway fellas thank you yeah. for this it's always good to see you Awesome. Yeah, Thanks, take care. You bet. That's you Jake did. Kubiski, Adam O'Brien. And again, we would love to hear your solar story. Uh, you have until the 25th. Uh, that's Sunday night, right? Yeah, you have until the 25th at 11.59.59 p.m. to get us your solar story. And then we're going to be submitting to you, our friends, the top three. So look to Positive Reflections presented by Kubi Energy next Monday. We'll identify the top three. And then you, our valued Real Talk audience, will have a week to decide who you think should get that full solar install. You know, we've also got so many other valuable partners that have done amazing work in making sure we can bring you this show every single day. And that includes the team at Eden Landscaping. Now's the time to realize your landscape dreams, whether it's a retaining wall, a fitstone patio, an outdoor kitchen, maybe it's just beautiful planter boxes, but like, you know, the big, huge ones. I've always admired the people that get the big boulders in their front yard. Hey, you know, they didn't pick it up in their three quarter ton, Sam. You know that they... They had a team like Eden Landscaping bring it in. 
you, you, you almost fell back in your chair when I mentioned the big front lawn boulder. Oh, I, I've said this many times before. I built myself a beautiful wooden address post surrounded by some nice rocks that I could carry, but I've always wanted that giant boulder in my front yard. Where did you where did you place the cutoff on rocks you could carry? Did you push yourself to a point of just shy of back spasm? I, I pushed myself to the point where the trunk of my car was almost dragging <laughs> almost on the road. Almost touching. <laughs> yeah, that's a good that's a good place to cut it <laughs> off. It's a good place. And then you just hope that it rises back up again. Yeah. Well, we already know that Eden Landscaping's got the big truck with the big picker gear because they managed to get Sherry the cherry tree into Sarah's yard. How's Sherry doing, by the way? She's doing well. Yeah. I mean, that heat wave. Holy smokes. Oh, man. Right? I had to water her and water her yeah. and water her and Thirsty then water girl. her a little bit more. Yeah. Well, we can't wait for to see Sherry continue to thrive. Eden Landscaping, it's what they do. They make things happen. You have a vision. They'll make it happen at landscapeedmonton.ca. The teams at the Dairy Queens of Northwest Edmonton and Sherwood Park want to remind you that if you mention Jesper or Real Talk at any of their six locations, Baseline Road, Y Gardens, Westmount, Newcastle, Nemeo, and Palisades, I did it backwards just to see if I could. You'll get two cheeseburgers for five bucks or two doubles for seven. Plus, of course, all the cool treats that characterize Dairy Queen. They're legendary, that iconic image for a reason. The Dairy Queens of Northwest Edmonton and Sherwood Park, great friends of this show. As is the team at St. Albert and Sherwood Dodge. Jeep has been trusted since 1941. And I know everybody's excited about the Grand Wagoneer. This is the re-entry into the luxury class. If you're looking at spending 150 grand if you're looking at spending big on a big cadillac why not look to the jeep that's going to undercut the price and over deliver on luxury it's what everybody's expecting you won't find a better selection of jeep than you will at sherwood and st albert dodge speaking of selection you also know campers village has you covered whether it's camping and hiking paddling whether it's getting out into the snow later this fall climbing travel or Maybe you're just looking for deals through the clearance section. You're going to find it all at campers-village.com. Of course, this is a family-owned business with three locations. If you'd like to do in-store shopping as well, you'll find two in Edmonton and one in Calgary. And there's the team at Westworld Computers that makes this show happen with the iMacs and the MacBooks and the iPads and everything else. Daryl and his team have been family-owned, delivering amazing customer service for more than four decades. You can shop them in person on their Mayfield Road location in our home city of Edmonton, or you can find them online at westworld.ca. They'll ship anywhere in Canada. You can also book your service appointment online. Just look for the service tab again at westworld.ca. Well, we wish you a wonderful Wednesday. Want to give you a bit of a heads up on what's coming up tomorrow, what's coming up on Thursday's show, including an initiative out of Afghanistan. What's this all about? We're going to talk more about Canada's legacy of residential schools and what the tuberculosis implications were. Could hundreds or thousands of these deaths have been prevented? Plus, why are some chefs boycotting salmon? And of course, since it's Thursday, someone's going to eat their words, courtesy of Prairie Catering. That's all coming up tomorrow. In the meantime, be in touch with us. We'd love to hear from you and have a great day.